again, everybody. Scott Bowden right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the KFR podcast. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, the great Brian Last, who today, unfortunately, is feeling a little bit less than average. Is that right, Brian? I feel fantastic. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, come on. He's been hacking and coughing. It sounds like a cross between uh, Randy Savage and a mouthful of barbed wire and Randy Hales introducing his latest array of Power Pro DVDs. Well, speaking of hacks, what do we have this week on KFR? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, here at KFR, we strive to provide you with a perspective of Memphis wrestling that is both original and extra crispy, taking you behind the scenes with the likes of promoter Jerry Jarrett, main event superstars like Bill Dundee and Jeff Jarrett, my former cohort in crime, Doug Gilbert, referee Jerry Calhoun, who was unfortunately knocked senseless during our conversation, but has since recovered. And one of the best enhancement talents in the territory's history, the late Jim Jameson. And even Kevin Lawler, son of the legendary king of wrestling, WWE Hall of Famer, and yes, the owner of Jerry Lawler's Carpet Cleaning Services, entrepreneur Jerry Lawler. But today, we are going even deeper behind the curtain, or should I say behind the camera, and upstairs to the engineer's booth at 1960 Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee, where our guest helped produce one of the most successful live wrestling TV shows of the Territory era each and every Saturday morning, Mr. Ken Parnell. And yes, he also produced The Jerry Lawler Show, a staple for ruffians like me who probably should have been in church on Sundays. That's right, Scott. Today we bring Ken's career into focus in this close-up personal look as he explains the pressures and the joys of being an employee of both WMC-TV5 as well as Jerry Jarrett's in the kayfabe era, a precarious high-wire act to be sure. Ken will discuss how often the boys veered off the TV format and why that proved to be successful and make the show better television. Ken will also reveal how Randy Macho Man Savage nearly caused him to quit the business and his rough treatment, literally, at the hands of a heel Jerry Lawler. Ken will also serve up cutting remarks regarding how he survived a walk down Bad Street, USA, and a stabbing at the hands of Freebird Michael Hayes in the summer of 1985, and lived to tell about it. And I want to say for the record, I was a witness for that event. I was in the cheap seats at the Mid-South Coliseum. So I'm sure the statute of limitations has run out on that. But Ken, if you ever need... Some backup on a personal injury lawsuit against Michael Hayes. God knows that dirtbag has it coming. Just give me a call. Well, this sounds like a good one, my fine-feathered friend. Seriously, though, if you like behind-the-scenes, straight-from-the-hip observations about Memphis wrestling, please do not miss this episode, as Ken certainly speaks from the heart. And as you'll discover, that's been no small feat of late for the now-retired WMC-TV engineer. Ken has no agenda. He simply tells it like it is and, you know, just wanted to take a walk down memory lane and uh, talk about the good old days. And we certainly do that here today on KFR. The end result is one of the most intriguing, entertaining episodes of the KFR podcast yet. If you do say so yourself. Exactly. We'll be right back with Ken Barnell right after this.
Something done, I'll tell you that. We're going to take yeah, a break right now. Don't we'll take be back no here. Break. We're not going to take a break. You leave it right here on me until Eddie Marlin comes out here. Get out here, Marlin. Where are you? You've got the shirt. Eddie, Eddie's been here and he's told me what the card is, and you're not on it Monday night. I don't care what he's told you. Let's but I take a break and we'll be back. I'm not taking a break. You're not on the card. Hey, did I'm he worked. leave this desk? Did no, no, no. I was back there minutes ago and he said you're not on the card. I don't think he changed his mind in 30 seconds. I don't care. There's not going to be a show, Dave, unless. Yeah, you want Bill? Well, you ain't getting. We're going to have a show. I want to refresh your memory about Billy Joe Travis, who's coming in here to battle superstar. Hey, let me tell you, wherever you are, Dave Brown, and you too, Dundee, you gutless wonder, you run and hide somewhere else in the studio. You'll be back with what? You'll be back with me, and you better be back with Cobra and Eddie Marlin out here and say that I got the match, or you've just seen the last of this wrestling show that you're going to see for today. And Kid Parnell, I know you're up there running those little knobs and turning and running those tapes. You run another tape, brother, and you're going to answer to me. Do you understand that? I'll tell you this. We're not going on with nothing else. Hey, do you, Bob, do you think Eddie Marlin's going to come out here or not? Huh? Huh? Hey, Eddie Marlin! Hey, Eddie Marlin! I don't Can think you hear me, Eddie Marlin? Come on. I don't think hey, he's coming out here. Eddie Marlin! I think what we need... Hey! hey Eddie I Marlin! I think what we need to do... You can rant and rave all you want to. Hey! Ken, we've got to tape... You better get out here, Eddie Marlin. We're we, not going to have no... No! We've got to tape up Ken some Parnell action... Parnell to run any tapes. ...with Jeff Jarrett. Ken? Hey! Ken, please... Ken Parnell, hold, hold the tape. Hold Let's just, take a let look me, at let it. Let me say this to you, Ken this Parnell. Is, let me tell you something. Ken Parnell, who's sitting up in that control room right now, if you run another tape, brother, and you know me, and you know me well enough that I, I mean what I say, if you run another tape while I'm standing out here, you're going to answer to me. You, Ken Parnell. I'm telling you right now, you get Eddie Marlin out here, or this show ain't going on. It's as simple as that. This show has to go on. No, these folks, the these folks tuned no in to watch a CWA well, wrestling show, show not to watch Eddie you rant Ray for 90 minutes. Ken, you know please, let's roll I'll that tape of Jeff Jarrett's action. Don't get over there and get ready to ring no bell, Dave. I want to ask you, who, did you, who do you think was in control right then and ran that tape? The producer. Which is who? Ken Parnell. Ken Parnell. Now, what did I tell him right before he ran that tape? Well, what did I tell him? Well, what did I say? In spite of what you're trying to say out here, you're not running the television well, show. you don't think so? Let me no, just show you No, the producer's running. Well, how long, how far will this microphone, I don't even need a microphone. It won't go far, well. Uh, now, come on, Lawler, I don't know where you're going. Out of the building would be nice. He's out in a hallway. Well, he's going up. Uh, is that the spiral staircase? He's going up to the control room. Ken, looks like he's headed in that direction. Uh, there's not enough light out there is, what, is what's happening here. You may be able to see some movement in the background, but I don't know where he is right now. But he was going up a spiral staircase that leads up to, uh, to our second level here where the, uh, where the producer is. Now, well, there he is. There's Lawler. He has no microphone, so we can't hear what's going on up there. Well, yeah, there's the control room right there. All right, he's in there. Our director, there's Howard. Where's Ken? Can't see. Kevin? Oh, oh come on now, Jerry. He's just doing what he's supposed to do, for heaven's sakes. Now get out of there. Get, get. 
Lawler confronting the producer, not happy with the tapes who've been running. Welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Our guest today made his living behind the scenes in Memphis wrestling, shrouded in the dark cloak of kayfabe that protected the business in those days. Starting as an engineer for WMC TV5 in 1981, he helped produce arguably the most entertaining year of television in Jarrett Promotions history. Bolstered by the return of the king and the emergence of the first family, Kevin Wayne Chicken Jimmy, he would continue that role well into the 90s for the TV station, literally overseeing from his spot in the control booth some of the most memorable Memphis moments of all time at 1960 Union Avenue. He also worked many a Monday night as Jarrett's cameraman at the Mid-South Coliseum, where he once took an ill-advised detour down Bad Street, USA in August 1985, when nefarious freebird Michael Hayes stabbed him in the forehead and the gut with a pair of scissors as part of an angle you would only see in Memphis at that time. Today, he's retired and living in the Sunshine State, where the only thing that dampens his mood is the play of the Miami Dolphins. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ken Parnell. Ken, welcome to KFR. Uh, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it, and uh, that was that was quite the introduction. <laughs> well, well, hey, uh, I, I think you you, you earned it uh, working uh, as an engineer and the producing probably the greatest wrestling show in the country in its high, in its heyday in its prime throughout the eighties and into the nineties. So uh, it's a it's an honor to have you here. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, and in addition to that, uh, the wrestling show, we also did the Jerry Lawler show there in Memphis. So that was a, uh, I did the first uh, probably three hundred and forty shows. Wow, wow, yeah, and that's uh, and that was a thrill for me because you know Jerry Lawler was Memphis, is, as you know, was a unique town because we did not have a professional sports team at the time. And especially with Lawler being from Memphis, he, he was sort of the de facto home team for for yeah. a lot for a lot of kids growing up, uh, especially me. And I don't, you know, I try to explain the cultural impact that that Memphis wrestling show had on the town. Uh, but unless you were there and lived it, I, I don't think you quite understand, do you? No, you don't, because uh, there there are several people here in Florida uh, where we live. Uh, in fact, the guy who uh, owns the barbershop where I get my hair cut, he uh, does Elvis impersonations, really, really good at it. And he has been in Memphis several times, and he, he asked me, he said, well, where did you work there? I said, well, I was at WMC. He said, did you do the wrestling show? you have anything to do with the wrestling show? This guy just out of the blue. And uh, he was just fascinated because uh, – and he was fascinated by the fact that I knew Lawler so well. It's like he said, I didn't think anybody knew him. Any, nobody got close to him. I thought, no, nah, Jerry's, a, Jerry's a heck of a nice guy. I said, until you tick him off, and then he can be, yeah, he can be hard to deal with. <laughs> so, because I, I kind of I flipped over a chair in the booth one, one Saturday from Mr. Lawler. He, he came up the steps and got, got a little ticked off because we aired a highlight tape of him uh, not doing so well. And. I stood up and said, Jerry, and he just, he showed me and over the chair I went and you talk about engineers and general managers and everybody freaking out. It's like, well, he's attacking people in the booth. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that. That was uh, February 1990 when when the king switched yes. was uh, reluctantly, I believe, switched back heel and was doing things that that you had never seen before. And 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 it's funny you mentioned that angle because uh, that was promptly uh, copied years later in WCW where. Yeah. NWO was atta- and everyone thought it was so groundbreaking and it seemed so real. Well, yeah, that was done years ago back in Memphis. Uh, and I remember that and you looked absolutely terrified. Did- now, was that one of those impromptu calls that Lawler made to go up there? Uh, no, actually, uh, we, in our pre-meeting, you know, the meeting we had in the little bathroom <laughs> off the side there at the station, uh, he was like, he said, are you okay with this? I said, sure. And he and we he even showed me how hard he'll push me and everything. The whole thing about falling over the chair, that was an accident. Uh, the chair, when I stood up, I was supposed to bump it, and I didn't bump it hard enough to get it out of the way. And when he pushed me, I took a half a step back, and I went over the chair. And you can't see his face real well, but his eyes were about the size of silver dollars because he was like, oh, my God. But I, I popped right back up, and my eyes were big, too. And I was looking, and I was like, what are you doing? And he, and that's when he was pointing at me. So it was, uh, it was not an impromptu thing, but it was, it was. We had talked about it beforehand. Okay, okay, because I, I know that, you know, that TV format that you would get, and especially, you know, it was it's funny. I thought that perhaps things ran more like a Swiss watch uh, back in the 80s because it was such a great show. And by the time I, I got involved in, in the business, uh, things had changed a bit. The the, the promotion de- definitely didn't have the depth of talent as they as yeah. they used to. And unfortunately, by the time I did my heel turn, uh, Jerry Jarrett was uh, working for Vince McMahon, uh, who, yeah. who was on trial. And so he was away and couldn't handle the little details. And so I do think something was missing from the show in that regard. Uh, but I loved what, you know, that, that format you would get like maybe 15 minutes before you went on the air. <laughs> As Lawler was, actually, oh, go, actually, so, you know what, what I, I would have it. Well, maybe about an hour before we go oh. on air, but that, that format on the long sheet of paper, you would not believe how many notes, as we're doing the show and I'm getting phone calls from downstairs or guys coming up and handing me notes where we're cutting this match to this, we're cutting this interview down to from three minutes to two minutes and I'm communicating to Lance in the ear. So it was, we were basically running on the fly and it was, uh, it was a challenge, but you know what? In about 12 years in the booth, we never, never, ever left the air without Lance and Dave saying goodbye and a proper close. Well, I mean, the, that's how well those yeah. two guys were such professionals together. We could hit them with anything and they would, they would adjust to it. I think the, I think the closest you came to that where, where it bare, almost missed the mark was uh, the rocks final appearance in Memphis. Yeah. I, yeah. Because uh, it, it, it was such a, we found, I think uh, the rock, you know, it was almost like getting, I guess, called up to the major leagues. Uh, yeah. because he, I think they got the phone call from Pat Patterson and WWF saying, Hey kid, you know, uh, tomorrow's your last day in Memphis. And so we, you know, we had to explain it really quickly. And I was managing Lawler then, uh, that Flex Cavana, as he was known yeah, then. What a name. Yeah. Yeah. He and Lawler get into an impromptu argument and there suddenly there's a title match and Flex is going to leap down. But the whole thing takes so un- long to unfold that there's only about two minutes <laughs> left on the day. And, and that's the only time I, c- I can remember Dave 
seeming a little anxious, but we we got the finish. He was, in. Yeah, I can remember him being a little rushed because that was that was one of those things that I didn't know about that until we're getting into the show, and I get a phone call in the booth, and it's like we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. So stay loose. And I'm like, how in the heck do I stay loose for something like this? This is major. <laughs> what are you talking about? So Lawler talked – he talked that angle into – I always said Jerry Lawler could talk people's butts into seats better than anybody else in the business except maybe Nick Bockwinkle. Oh. And he and Bockwinkle together were – that was classic. I, that was classic. I absolutely it, – without a doubt. It, it, I, I surprise some people when they ask me, who is your favorite Lawler opponent? And I just, I, without a doubt, I say Nick Bockwinkle and they're like, what? Yeah. Really? I mean, not, not Savage, Dundee. I said, no, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Dun, you know, the, especially the feud with Dundee in 77. I mean, that's what, that's when I became a super fan and I loved, uh, Randy Savage's promos. And I had been watching, uh, ICW for years before he made his debut in Memphis, but Nick Bockwinkle, uh, and, and even the name Bockwinkle, it just sounds yeah. like the world champion's name, uh, carried himself uh, so regally. And you almost needed a uh, Webster's Dictionary on hand uh, to w- when you're listening to a Nick Bockwinkle promo, because he's, as Lawler would say, he's using all those 50, 50 cent words. Um, and I, I just absolutely loved his, the arrogance uh, and he came off like a guy who was really the Beverly Hills champion. Whereas I think a guy like Ric Flair, as as great as Rick was, Rick uh, came off like a pro wrestler trying yeah. to p- portray a rich, high rolling champion. Whereas Nick, it just came off effortlessly. Well, wh- what I always loved about Nick, he would be in town and Jarrett or Lawler, whoever had him booked. They would say, okay, we've got a date in six weeks or something. And Nick would sit down and he'd say, do you want the strap with the coat? Without? And he was just so easy, so easy to work with. And Nick, I need two and a half minutes. And at 229, he'd wrap it up. <laughs> I mean, the man was just, he was phenomenal. And I mean, and he, he put he and Lawler together. It was, in fact, we shot an interview with him uh, for the Lawler show with Lawler interviewing him at the Coliseum and, and I had the time for the show. I said, I said, I need about four minutes. And I swear at three fifty nine they wrapped it up. It was just wrapping up right, right at the right time. So it was just classic. Those guys and the matches. Oh. Do you remember the 90 minute Broadway they did in Memphis? Well, I was there. Um, the, the first world, uh, the worst first world championship match I, I ever saw. Uh, and it was only about the third time that I was at the Coliseum was when, and here's the beauty I think of, of Jerry Jarrett's booking. Unlike all these other prom- promoters who were kind of, I don't know, in a way they were marks for the world title and, and they would book so many world title matches throughout the year. And it just made the local guy actually kind of look bad because if he's, yeah. tr- if he gets so many opportunities, but the way Jarrett Lawler did it, they realized it was going to be a struggle for Jerry Lawler to ever, to really get a run. So he was booked sparingly and, but they, 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 and they would get a date on Bachwinkle, but they would get like six or seven weeks of angles and promos out of it because Typically, I think that in '79, that was the that was the catalyst for Lawler and Dundee having their falling out. Um, and so, in August of '79, Lawler turned heel, beat Dundee for the title shot, 
and uh, they went uh, to a 60-minute draw and then had an overtime period. And Lawler yeah. pinned him in the overtime, which, of course, didn't really mean too much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, that was incredible. That was that. Yeah, might, I, yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, I was at I was at ringside shooting when they did. They had uh, wrestled for the Southern title. Uh, Bockwinkle was holding the Southern title. Yes, Lawler beat him for the Southern title. Bockwinkle said, "You can't do that again." And they the next week they agreed to a ninety minute, and it was supposed to be pure wrestling, no punches, none of that kind of thing. And they went ninety minutes, and I swear those two guys were not. They did not stop the whole 90 minutes. And I get back to the back afterwards and he's going to shoot an interview with Nick, and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to have to have some time to catch his breath. He's already showered and dressed and everything, and he's like, hey, brother, he said, are you going to do this interview? And I'm like, why are you not tired? And he said, oh, he said, working with Lawler, he said, he said that man can have a match with a wash rag. I said, both of you can. I said, this is unreal. Yeah. Lawler comes in the room, and Lawler's not even breathing hard. And I'm thinking, my gosh. You know, 90 minutes, and it was constant action. The people there left exhausted because they weren't sure what was going to happen. You know what? It was, I, it was a great. That may be one of the rare Lawler Rockwinkle matches that that I have not seen. Uh, do you do you have that, by the way? Uh, no, I do not. If I, people ask me, they say, "Yeah, Ken Parnell's got all these." Yeah, I know. No, I don't have a single one of them. I do not have anything. The only thing I've got with the Bad Street thing with with Michael is I got it on YouTube. So that's that's all I've got. So right, right, right. Well, we'll get into that in in, in, just, in just a moment. Uh, but yeah, I you know it was funny when when law and I, lo- I i loved how lawler would would always say you know when you're thinking of a tag team partner you you try to think back to the guy who's given you the toughest matches uh yeah. and there was a, the southern tag titles were vacated and they were up for grabs and uh Lawler said nobody's given me any tougher matches than nick bockwinkle and i just thought wow i i gotta be there to see this after seeing them you know, feud for so many years. And yeah. so Bach would go like, you know, essentially was a baby face that night. And afterward, he's, uh, you know, he's going, he's catching his ride to the airport. And I said, Mr. Bachwinkle, Mr. Bachwinkle, uh, can I get your autograph? And he kind of, you know, he, he, he barely glances at me and kind of went, kind of does a, ah, <sighs> uh, ah. Uh, very well. <laughs> uh, Typical Nick. Typical Nick. Yeah, just uh, as we as we often say when describing Mister Bachwinkle, pure class. Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was one of those people that that you just you love. And there was not very many people, not many of the boys. People would talk about trouble. There's only one or two that I can think of that I could I'd say that I didn't want to be or ever be around again. Mm-hmm. So after well, being around them once, well, I hope so, I, but, I, I hope I wasn't one of them. <laughs> no, 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 Scott, you were not. You were not one of them. You were you were you were actually pretty easy to work with after working with Cornet and, and Hart. You were a piece of cake. <laughs> I'll bet. Now, okay, now let's uh, let's uh, speaking of Jimmy Hart. Now you were there. Now you started. Uh, was it late 1980 or 1981? Early 1981. Or I think it was early '81. Okay, so Lawler was back from the broken leg, uh-huh. which was an exciting time because the the promotion. Yeah, he, had, he came back babyface. Yeah, uh, I, I was I was there. Uh, 
at the Coliseum along with, I swear, I, I, I kid Jerry Jarrett about it, but he must have paid off a fire marshal because there were people sitting in the aisles throughout general admission. We were in the nosebleeds. We barely got tickets because, you know, Memphis was not an advanced town. You know, everybody yeah. walked up and bought their tickets. So there's like this big line outside. And uh, that was the biggest pop I've ever heard in my life. Uh, oh, yeah. When he when the when the when it opened up and he started coming up, they, they raised him up and they had the smoke coming up with him. Yeah, the crowd went crazy. I was at ringside actually shooting still pictures that night. Oh, wow. Now, do you have any of those? Uh, I have them somewhere in my garage. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll talk after the show. Uh, <laughs> and how great was Tori Graham on the mic? Oh, man, the dream was unbelievable. I used to, I'd sit and just listen to him talk, and he'd start practicing <laughs> the little rhymes and things. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, ball and squalling, climbing the wall, and hometown jubilee. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And what a thrill, what a thrill it was, uh, you know, because uh, in inevitably, Ken, all these interviews turn back to me. <laughs> So bear with me for just a moment, but about, you know, I, I was a kid, I was, I was like nine, nine or 10 years old. And I'm, I had to see in this incredible packed Mid-South Coliseum while they're making his triumphant return, mimicking that, uh, a kiss entrance that, you know, he'd been to a kiss concert mm -hmm. where they came up through the yeah. stage and, uh, and they did it, you know, uh, that probably on the, on the, has grand a scale as kiss, but pretty damn, and I bet he got a bigger pop than Kiss did. Uh, I, I guarantee he did. <laughs> and I believe that, that, yeah, it's the theme from uh, from 2001, way before Ric yep. Flair ever started use, thinking about using it. And he, you know, and it, and it, it's just that slow build. And he comes up, and then uh, as he walks to the ring, I believe it's the theme from Star Wars uh, playing. And man, that place was just, I, you know, handsome Jimmy Valiant described the Mid-South Coliseum as being shaped like a flying saucer. And I thought there was so much energy in that place that it was going to just come up off the ground and maybe, take off. yeah, maybe go yep. into orbit because it was <laughs> rocking and rolling that night, uh, for sure. And I believe that's how, uh, uh, Troy got that spot. Like he showed up looking for work a, a few weeks before Lawler is about to make his return. And, and they had not decided on Lawler's first big opponent. And yep. they said, well, yeah. And they said, boy, can you talk? And Jimmy Hart, I think, I think it was Jimmy Hart and Jerry Jarrett. And, and I don't know if you were there. Uh, no, I was, they were still cafe and me, but I was, uh, I was working at the TV station, but I wasn't around. I didn't go back for the interviews. Uh, I was actually doing engineering work. I wasn't even in the booth yet. Okay, I got you. I got you. All right, and so and supposedly he cut this incredible promo, and Jimmy Hart ran back and and told Lawler, "He's like, you got to listen to this guy. He he does Dusty Rhodes better than Dusty Rhodes." <laughs> and the whole thing with the, with the dream machine and very very subtle references that it, that it was in fact Dusty under the hood. Uh, but he was trying to protect his reputation for taking Hart's blood money. <laughs> so uh, tell me about your, your first early days uh, when you first started the job and your entry into the strange new world. Well, when I first started, I, uh, when I, I first met everybody, I was working in the engineering department and uh, they had Lawler asked me if he said, 
I see you taking pictures. Cause I took some pictures back in the dressing room for a couple of the boys for something. They were going out of town or something. And he said uh, he wanted to know if I could take pictures at the Coliseum occasionally. So he would have me come down to the Coliseum, and that's how I met Jerry and actually met Paula, Paula at the same time. Oh, lovely his wife. Lady. Yeah. She lovely, lovely, beautiful, sweet lady. Beautiful lady. Uh, but the first, when I first started, it was – I already knew everything was a work. I mean, you know, I had set ringside at many of the matches. I loved the entertainment value of it. I loved the drama of it. And I was – like you said, I was a super fan. And they would they would kayfabe me and kayfabe me. And then when they brought me in to start shooting the video, the first two weeks I shot video, I didn't go to the back. I didn't go back into the locker oh. rooms. I waited out. I waited out out front. And Randy would come out and he'd say, "Okay, here's the match. We're going to shoot this match, this match, this match." And he'd just tell me what matches to shoot. So and I thought, what's going? On? And here I am ringside. I can hear the guys. I can hear them calling spots. I can hear everything. And then I, I come back one night and I, I bring Randy the equipment and everything. And Eddie Marlin says, "This is getting so old." And he looked at Randy and he says, "He said, come on, let me show you where you do the interviews." And Eddie took me. Eddie was the one that actually just took me back there. So it was uh, that was like I felt like I had been initiated into the into the family. It, it's almost it's almost like you hear those those guys who document uh, gorillas. And and in the, in the jungle, slowly they're accepted, you know, into the yep. into the fold. But but it goes to show you just how protected the business was back then. You know, Jim Cornette was taking photographs for for so many of these guys and making them a lot of money, and he was never smartened up really <laughs> until about a year yeah. or two later. Uh, crazy stuff. But I yeah, I, that's that's how I got started, and then shooting the videos, and then right after that was the. Uh, uh wasn't long after that we had the Andy Kaufman angle and uh oh I tell you we shot so many interviews with him and remember the one where he was talking about the women and peeling the potatoes and staying in the kitchen? Oh yeah, yeah. We shot that interview and when it aired on channel five, the general manager comes down during the show, comes into the engineering room and slams the door. And he's like just going nuts. It's Ron Clayman, and he's telling me, he said, "Don't you ever, ever air any of that trash from that man again." And I'm like, "That's Andy Kaufman. What did he say?" You know. And he's like, "You hear? It? Do you understand?" He says, "I'll fire you." And I'm like, "Uh oh, <laughs> everybody's in trouble." Well, because they were they, they they had gotten hundreds of phone calls, right? Yes, the the switchboard had lit up. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the only other time I think was the Rocky Johnson incident with Lawler that it did lit up even more. Uh, the Rocky Johnson, I became very good friends with Maxine Smith there <laughs> just because of all that stuff. But yeah, the the switchboard lit up, and Ron Clayman's personal phone in his in the office on the third floor, it, people were calling it. I mean, his wife even called, from what I understand. So I mean, it was it was pretty intense, and so we kind of we had to cut back on the interviews. So um, we didn't have we didn't have anything from Andy. So we would just have to use Hart to to kind of talk and get him over. Well, which we were, Hart did for tons of guys who came through the territory. Oh yeah, yeah. Jimmy was uh, poo poo, as everybody called him. Jimmy was Jimmy was just he was a dream to work with. He could he was. Not quite as good as Lawler, but he was he was pretty good. He's pretty good when he st- when he'd get started, he was hilarious. Yeah, it it, it was a, it was amazing to see 
uh, because he basically came off as you know kind of kind of Lawler's flunky, much like I did when I later managed Lawler, uh, but almost like a Mickey Pool type who who just stood next to Lawler when Lawler. Yeah. And, and this is in, I'm talking about in '79 when Lawler switched heel, uh, and really uh, Lawler was cutting these. Uh, Without a doubt, the best heel promos of his career, I think. And was it was it his prime as an athlete? Terry Jarrett had these uh, these big plans, you know. In the in the in the, I guess in the grand scheme of things, everything turned out for the best uh, with Lawler breaking his leg. Although he might disagree with that, uh, because it set up this tremendous feud and this uh, triumphant return of the king has, has a baby face. Um, yeah, but it, I, I've always it's always been because uh, Jerry Jarrett explains that the whole creation of the CWA World Championship in '79 was to start these unification matches, uh, and they'd already kind of started doing that with Nick Bockwinkel and the AWA, and it would have been interesting to see Jarrett's deal unfold. However, you know Memphis was built on personal issues, and when Hart, who rarely said a thing for so many months comes out there and cuts that very first promo with Lance Russell saying, you know, if you have a prize racehorse, a champion, and he breaks his leg, what do you do to yeah. him? What do you do to him, Lance? You shoot him, right? And that was so effective. That Lawler almost called the station. He was so hot <laughs> about it. Oh, well, and, and the unexpected thing is he brings out Paul Ellering. Yes. Remember Paul Ellering was yeah. the one that he crowned the new king. Yeah. Yeah. And- so, I mean, I, I just, Jimmy was, that that was an interview that when he did that, it just, everybody, I mean, all of us at the station were like, what? Did he say he was going to shoot Lawler? So uh, Jimmy was, Jimmy was, uh, he was, he was classic on the mic. And just, yeah, for, once the muzzle re- was removed, uh, yep. he was off and running and just absolute gold. And, and Jared even told him, he's like, you know, Jimmy, we're counting on you to carry the territory. And he's like, gulp, you know, because, Uh-oh. yeah, he, had, he had, I mean, he had said maybe 10 words uh, on, on Memphis television. So it was remarkable to see. And and so you started uh, producing the show in 81. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and to me, it was funny because I just had a conversation the other day and somebody asked me, what's your favorite year of Memphis television? I said, without a doubt, 1981. And they said, oh, really? Not not 82 and 83 with the fabs and the video? I go, no, 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 no. Go back and watch 1980. There's plenty of good stuff on YouTube. 1981 was by far the most entertaining show, not, not only in Memphis history, but probably in the history of the business. It was just fantastic. It had... Uh, almost like this feel of an intense gang war with Lawler, Mantell, Kern, Dundee against Hart's first family. And man, they had a red hot, you know, Lawler's return was hot. And then they uh, they really got going that summer with sellouts and the ratings just went through the roof. I believe it was the number two Number three or number two highest rated show in the city, including primetime, which is just phenomenal. Oh, actually, actually, we were number one. What, okay, oh, were you? Okay, it was a it was a top rated show in Memphis, and the as far as the finances for the TV station, the wrestling show made more money than the news department and any other show. I mean, football, everything. That show, they had people standing in line wanting to advertise on that show, waiting their turn. 
My the, the ratings, because it was like well over 60% of the TVs, available TVs in the Memphis broadcast area were tuned to Channel 5 at 11 a.m. on Saturdays. I don't, yeah, and I don't know if any other show in the country could, I mean, I know, I, you know, I know the Von Erics were really big and, and, and Texas and everybody had their, their local heroes. And then, you know, TBS was kind of a special deal. And, uh, our very own Tommy Rich was in the right place at the right time and had that national yeah. stage. But as far as a, a, a cultural impact for an entire area, uh, it's not even close without a doubt. It was, it was Memphis and in 1981, Jimmy Hart, I, and I let, I, I let, you know, Jimmy Hart would either come out and, you know, every Saturday or every day really was the greatest day of his life, right? Uh, but yeah, I, would oh, love yeah. the, I would love those promos with, I think there's one of he and, and Chick Donovan, you know, and uh, Chick Donovan's got a broken leg, Hart's got a broken leg, one of the nightmares is in a sling, and Lance is like, well, it looks like the walking wounded are out here. And Hart does one of those deals where it, it's almost like, Hart was an incredible actor. I think he can cry on cue better than Meryl, Meryl Streep. And he's like, you know, it's it's a tough time, but things are going to get better, baby. Uh, you know, he would suddenly turn, you know, the sad, awful situation into the greatest day of his life. <laughs> and, and, you know, the thing is, behind the scenes, he was constantly on that chewing gum. He was chewing it like crazy at 90 miles an hour. And he was so high, but he was nothing like, say a jimmy valiant in the dressing room you know jimmy was always like hey brother yeah. what's going on yeah he just real late but jimmy was like bouncing off the walls all the time you'd be getting ready to do interviews with him and he's just he's looking around and jerry and it's like jimmy calm down i don't i don't know how the that's how he stayed so thin i'm sure because he was constantly on the go constantly on the go that uh, and I'm not trying to take away from 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 Hart at all, and I'm and I'm not I'm certainly not insinuating anything because I think it was just the way Jimmy was wired. But Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Jarrett later later said that too. He goes, he goes. The first few times that I interact, I thought Jimmy Hart was on speed. Uh, <laughs> and the more I got to know him, you know, and I figure he's from the rock and roll world. He, you know, what's he on? And then the more I got to know him, that's just him. You know, he, yeah. he just had so much energy and you could tell, you know, the beauty, I think, of, of a great promo is a guy who goes out there and has a pretty good idea. And and they would give you a couple of bullet points to say. And then when Hart got rolling, I think just so much stuff was improvised and off the cuff. And how Lance Russell, for the most part, kept a straight face, I will never know. Because they were, and and Hart walked that fine line of being funny as hell, entertaining, but you still wanted to kill him. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy was, uh, do you remember the day that he put the flower, dumped uh, the flower on Lance? Yeah, that was his farewell performance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, I'm sitting in the booth. I didn't know about that. I'm sitting in the booth, and Jimmy comes out, and Jimmy goes around, because I knew he was leaving, and he goes ranting and raving, and it starts talking about Lance and shoving Lance and stuff. And then all of a sudden, they're dumping flour on Lance, and I'm like, "Oh my God! Right. <laughs> Look what they did!" Right, right. Um, what can what can you tell me? I'm sure a lot of it had to be, even though you, you uh, that, that's fantastic. I had no idea that you were a fan before you you had the job, which is which is I actually really went cool. to the Hippodrome in Nashville. Oh my with gosh! My dad. 
Wow. So I, I go back that far, back to Lynn Rossi and Bearcat Brown, uh, back even before Joey Rossi started wrestling. So, I mean, I was a fan back years and years ago, back when Luthez was the world champion. Oh, man. And, and what, just really quickly, uh, I've heard so many stories about Luthez. It, it, to me, it almost sounds like it was the, the Nick Bockwinkle experience, but even more so, just the aura of Luthez and the way he carried himself. Uh, has a, from a fan's point of view, uh, especially at a young age, uh, what was your impression of Lou as the world heavyweight champion? When I saw him, I, he came into Nashville to the Hippodrome once, and then I saw I may actually met him later when he was would come into Memphis and work occasionally. But he, when he came to the ring, you felt like the heavens had opened up because the man just it was like everybody just kind of caught their breath because he was so convincing and would, was just an uh, an amazing worker. And just old school. I mean, you know, they didn't do all the crazy stuff that they do today. But he was, I was just, I thought he had, class was just dripping off of him. Mm. And to hear him do an interview was, it was not in the same league as Nick Bockwinkle, but for the time, it was the Nick Bockwinkle type of interview when he did an interview. Well, yeah, and and everybody had something different that they brought to the table and uh, in delivering promos. And I think that's one of the things that made Memphis wrestling so interesting. The just the incredible cast of characters, big, small, fat, ugly, uh attractive, different races. Uh everybody had just had a different look. There were no there's not a lot of the you know, I don't want to say sound like an old man who's uh talking about ah they all look the same these days and they cut these crappy promos but uh, we're all i mean you had handsome jimmy valiant bill dundee the australian uh lawler the hometown uh depending on you know he could be the humble hometown baby face or the cocky arrogant heel uh that you love to hate uh jimmy hart was in another league uh even guys who didn't even do that well in other areas you know i think a chick donovan he had kind of an awkward clumsy charisma especially yeah. when he was paired with hart kevin sullivan was great in memphis uh all orndorff yeah uh, yeah yeah well and and that was a guy who was doing jobs freddie graham yeah and jared saw him and said my goodness this guy is a former legit athlete he's in fantastic shape he's good looking he does he doesn't deliver a polished promo but he doesn't need to you know it, it, it can come off gruff and he can stumble a little bit because he's just a tough mean athlete you know and yeah. so he he brings Paul Orndorff in and instantly creates a superstar. And I think that's one thing that Jerry Jarrett does not get enough credit for, just his eye for talent. Yeah, and the fact that everybody talks about how much talent came through Memphis, how much of that talent was actually developed by Jerry Jarrett, and Lawler had his hands in some of it, but Jerry Jarrett could single out and could mold and develop talent he would take them in up to his place there in Nashville and have them do interviews over and over and over and get them comfortable in front of the camera. He just developed and some some great talent. I mean, look at the fabulous ones, putting those guys together. I mean, a couple of guys that were like mid-card, occasionally doing a main event, but mostly mid-card stuff. You put them together and 
they're one of the hottest things the territory had ever seen. Yeah. So it was it, it was amazing. And really amazing what what. And I'm sorry, and, re- and really changed the oh, and re- really broadened the demographic of the audience. Yes. With, with, yes. with that, the, I, how much did the show, in your opinion, change? from 81 to 82 with the emergence of the fabulous ones and then shortly thereafter the rock and roll express and the music videos uh what are your thoughts on that and and and, and were was the live studio it seemed to me that there were a lot more pretty girls in in the front row of the saturday morning wrestling show and on monday nights well, we, well if you remember bob crone who was our floor director he would uh he would kind of strategize and get people seated just so. So he was pretty good at doing that. Um, but I think we, when we started the music videos, with uh, we had done a few with Lawler, and I think there had been two or three done with Dundee. Uh, but it, there wasn't that many until the Fabs came along. And once the Fabs came along, uh, it changed everything, and it, it gave the studio audience and the audience at the Coliseum, when they hear the music, it it's kind of gave a new meaning to it. And brought out uh, like they were more at a almost at a rock concert instead of at at a wrestling match because you have these two good-looking guys, uh, kind of rough-looking with the beards and the long hair. But I mean, they were dressed in all the the glitter and everything. But then they would get out there and deliver in the ring and and defeat people, you know, beat the hell out of like the Moon Dogs and the war, Road Warriors and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think it totally changed the look of wrestling, and then you bring in the Rock and Roll Express, who are more teeny bopper. And Ricky and Robert had that had that little, almost little kid, like they just fell for the the teeny boppers, just loved them. So, and boy, those two teams did not like each other for a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but. When you had the two of them, and you'd have the two of them on the card, it was like they were vying for that top spot. And it made both teams better, I think, because they both worked harder at their showmanship. Stan and Steve, they went from being kind of uptight a little bit to being more loose with it, and especially Stan. Stan was unbelievable mm-hmm. how loose he became. and yep. just He would joke around with the fans and everything, and it made him – more than one young lady at the Coliseum would say that they thought they were very sexy, but they and they'd say, "But Stan Lane, they'd go, oh my God.'" And I think that's because he loosened up, became more comfortable with his his uh, his gimmick, and then and just was able to work the crowd better. Yeah, well, they complemented each other really well because yes. Kern, Kern was more of the tough talking, serious guy. Lane, I think, would would typically. Uh, start the promo especially if if they were coming off a big win and and yeah. joking around with Lance and and you know and he had that DJ voice right and yeah absolutely yeah and he was and he would kind of cut the joke and and then Kern would take it and Kern Ter- Kern would be a little bit more you know serious and then Lane might end it with a one liner and then they'd go to the ring uh, yeah. just a, a, a incredible chemistry and it, and it's stunning to, th- you know, Jarrett says, you know, I was playing with all these different combinations in my mind and it was almost going to be, uh, Terry Taylor and Stan Lane. And yeah. he just thought that, you know, you needed some, some personality and he saw, and he's, you know, I, and I, I don't know 
how he saw it because Lane had had been a babyface for a while as a single. He had he had left Hart's first family, and I and I love this because Lane had always come off like this really arrogant, good looking guy, and he quits not by making the save for another babyface, but he finds the uh, the cooked up books <laughs> that Hart had been keeping, and Hart had been ripping him off. So it was all about a money deal, right? Uh-huh. And, and that's what turned him again, which again was was the right call to make. Uh, for a guy like Lane, but you had not seen too much of his humor, uh, and maybe Jarrett saw something backstage where Stan was cutting up. Oh, he was he was constantly ribbing people in the back. Okay, so that, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on in the back. Stan was you had to protect your your possessions. I like my brief. I'd lock my briefcase when I we get ready to go to the ring. I'd lock everything up because Stan would he wouldn't do anything to damage anything, but. I mean, you'd be subject to open up your briefcase and be a dead rat in your briefcase or something, you know. <laughs> whoa, do, whoa. Or maybe even a live one if he could catch it. No, wait a minute. So, you're, you're not. You're, you're talking about an actual rodent, not a. Yes. Not yes, a, a rodent. Not, not a wrestling groupie. Yeah, not not Nate Whitlock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant I meant a wrestling groupie. The rat, the the rat, the arena rats, as they oh, would call them. But arena rats. Uh, yeah. No, no, he was no. It was this was like a real rat. <laughs> Um, and, uh, again, when, when I, uh, when I, when I think back to 1981, uh, just, you, you saw the, the family, uh, guys coming and going because Lawler would put them out. Uh, that was when yeah. Kevin Sullivan came in to be Lawler's partner and quickly turned on him and joined. I was really Hart's first Lieutenant there for a while. And those two were gold. Chick Donovan, who never got a push anywhere else, uh, was super chick and that whole, I don't know if you remember the angle where uh, where Chicken lost his confidence and Hart gets him to sing "We Are Family." Yeah, <laughs> Kevin Chick, uh, Kevin Chick, Wayne and Jimmy, come on, sing it with me. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, Chick Donovan is just a made man uh, in Memphis, even though he was just a little awkward on his promos. But everybody didn't have to be polished. Uh, Dutch Mantel with his, I still get chills. Uh, that promo that Dutch cut when he made the save for uh, the Dream Machine and Dundee against Onita, Fuji, and Tojo Yamamoto, he Dutch, you know, had, had, gave no indication at all leading up to this that he was about to turn uh, and switch uh, babyface. But he he goes out and makes the save as as uh, the three Japanese guys are beating are beating down Dundee or the Dream. And when he comes out to do to do his promo the following Saturday morning, uh, he explains that that he was a legit you know Vietnam veteran, and he goes and I I was watching the match and and I and I saw three men, three, you know, and I think he called them Orientals, uh, <laughs> beating down one man, and I saw I looked over Lance and I saw a little boy holding a little American flag that the D and dream had been passing around ringside and he had tears in his, and he dropped the flag like he had lost hope and something inside mm. me snapped. And I, 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 I just unbelievable. I mean, and, and with that one interview, Dutch was off and running and, and also, and Dutch was one of those guys too. You, you, you always thought, is he turning heel here? You know, when he, he would get, he got over strong as a baby face, but he was kind of the original Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, and yeah, yeah, with that lone wolf character. What did what did you think of uh, Dutch and and his promo skills? You know, I thought I thought Dutch would. 
I, I have to agree with you. Half the time, even when he was babyface, I was, I'd hear his interview and listen to it, and it's like, is, are we switching him heel? I haven't heard about that. What's going on with Dutch? And then the next week he could he could do a softer edge one, but usually he would start soft and then wind up finishing it with a real hard edge. And he just, I don't, know, I think he was probably one of the better interviews. But when I first met him, first got in, got into working at the at the Coliseum and at the TV station. Dutch, I thought this guy's never going to be able to talk. They're going to put somebody with him to talk for him. But once he started. I guess he was doing it all along, and I just didn't see it. But his his interview skills were just phenomenal, and they grew and grew and grew. Now he was he was always the type that if you were doing an interview with him, he'd he'd come in. And I I can remember at the Coliseum, he was getting ready to go to Puerto Rico. He said, "I need to shoot three interviews." He said, "I need to shoot two babyface and a heel," and I'm like, "Okay." He said, you just put them on the same tape, we're going to send them down to Puerto Rico. And so we sent them down to Puerto Rico, and he goes in as a heel, switches babyface. In fact, he called, and, and I sent down one of the video wrestling videos we'd done of him. I sent him a copy of that to Puerto Rico. Then he, he does an interview down there, switches himself back heel, and then switches back bay. And I'm like, how many times can you switch down there? <laughs> I mean, in Dutch with Dutch could talk himself heel and talk him I don't know he could talk himself all the way babyface but he could get pretty daggum close but he could talk himself heel in a heartbeat and he was he and Lawler are the, probably the only two that could do that in one interview yeah yeah and and that feud was very special in the spring of 82 where the fans were divided yeah uh, because Dutch and it was it, it was interesting to see the way that unfolded, because Dutch sort of came off as the as the heel at first, uh, but then they kind of went with the reaction they were getting. Which in Memphis, it was a, it, I was shocked because you know I was a lulla guy all the way, and I, I was you know there for one of their first matches, and and about almost forty percent of the fans were cheering for Dutch. And, and, and yeah. Dutch says in Nashville, it was about 80%. <laughs> and Lawler kind of went with it and kind of came out and, and was uh, almost very, it was almost like very subtle heel interviews, taking, taking jabs at, at Dutch. And, and Dutch went with this whole thing of wanting to prove to Jerry Lawler that he was a good wrestler and Lawler would not do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was such a it was it was it was a very unique feud because Memphis wrestling by and large you know the it was pretty black and white who was a heel and who was a baby face and Dutch is one of those rare guys that in eighty one eighty two or that era that got not one but two clean pinfalls over Lawler I think on back to back weeks yeah yeah Dutch was uh, especially I think uh, we we got into eighty two. And that's kind of started the thing with Kaufman, and I, uh, but D- Dutch was was always the type. He and Lawler could work, and they could both be babyface on TV. But when they get in the ring, they could switch from babyface to heel back and forth between the two of them in the ring, and have the fans almost confused. But they would they would split, and I have to agree, Lawler was not over in Nashville nearly as much as he was in Memphis and in Louisville. Uh, Evansville was, uh, I think he was okay there, but 
Memphis and Louisville, he was really over. Nashville, Nashville was more of a Dundee and, and Mantell and the Fabs when the Fabs came along. Well, and I think in Dutch's case, it was because he had had that great feud with Randy Savage working for Goulas. Uh, yeah, for for someone and you know and and had really been kind of a main event guy there and actually I think they re- they rented they they left the fairgrounds and actually rented the uh, is it the city auditorium I guess for Dutch's only shot at Harley Race for the NWA World Title because uh, they were expecting a a, a bigger crowd. Of course, every week Nick Gulas was expecting the biggest crowd in history. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I met I met him shortly after the takeover and. Uh, I don't know about him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> kind of like, Ugh, yeah. I need to go wash my hand here. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of like a car salesman or used car salesman, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And he's going to sell you the lemon and knows it's a lemon and is going to lock the door where you, oh. you can't find him when you when you have problems with it. Yep, yep, and with absolutely no conscience about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me your thoughts then about Jerry Jarrett and what it was like, because technically, I guess you worked for the station. Well, I worked for the station, but I was uh, I freelanced for for the promotion for the wrestling promotion, and uh, like Saturday mornings, I did not get paid by the TV station for being in the booth. It was that was all uh, from Jarrett. Oh. So, I, but I think Jerry Jarrett, in my opinion, is probably uh, one of the most brilliant promoters and brilliant minds for the wrestling business to be able to come up with all the gimmicks that he has and that he's come up with and, and shot videos and introduced them with interviews from people, Jerry. And on top of that, and to be, and I, I don't know if a lot of people see it. I think he's, I think he's more humble than he's, he should. He needs more. He, he deserves more credit than he gets for what he did for the wrestling business. I think in Atlanta and in New York, as well as Memphis, um, Jerry was he, Jerry was always very very kind to me, very good to me, and I, I've got nothing nowhere near. I mean, I hear the boys, some of the boys talking about him, and th- I have nothing bad to say about the man, nothing at all to him or his entire family, Randy and Eddie and the whole group. But Jerry was always a class act, and he was he. I think he was one hell of a promoter, and he could do things on the fly. He and he and Lawler both, but Jerry Jarrett was really good on the fly about changing directions with an angle. He'd see it evolving a different way, and I he he's changed them on TV, changed them changed them hot on TV. So I think he's just a a unique talent that was made for the wrestling business, and um, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that he did the split from Nick and had the guts to go out there and get the TV TV stations and do the things that he did. Yeah. Yeah. That really came back to, uh, to haunt Mr. Goulas because I don't think Jerry would have done that otherwise. Uh, and it was, but it was, you know, and it cost Jerry Jarrett a lot of money in the short term, but it cost Nick Goulas a lot more in the long run. Yeah. Cause that was a very short lived yeah. wrestling war. Um, yeah, it didn't it didn't last very long. Jerry Jarrett, I mean, when he and Lawler uh teamed up and you know, then they had the whole plan and Lance wound up leaving Channel 13 and coming over to do the wrestling show. And then when Dave Brown switched and left 13 and went came over to 5, it was like, wow. Mm. 
So, and Jared, Jared had his fingers in all of that. So, I mean, he was, he was, like I said, he was a great, I think a great mind business wise. Uh, I think he's been fairly successful outside of the wrestling business. I know the wrestling business didn't do the big money that everybody wanted to do, but I think, uh, considering the size of that house that he had there in Hendersonville for a while, <laughs> I think he, I think he did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that legendary house that uh, I believe he had. He uh, and this may have been a mistake in hindsight. I believe he had a big Christmas party, and a lot of the boys showed up, and there was this mansion that <laughs> they were like, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> what's what's going on?" And I believe Dave Brown told me uh, when we were doing our podcast, and this is like a, a little pre discussion that we were having. He goes, "Yeah, Lance and I pull up, and we look up at this house on the hill, and we think." Boy, we're on the wrong end of the business, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the first time I saw it was uh, I was coming back from Louisville and pulled up to, pulled up in the driveway, and I'm the same way. I stopped in the driveway and I went, "Whoa, is this a shopping mall or is this his house?" <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it was it was uh, it was quite the quite the mm, uh, well, it was it was quite a house. I was let's put it that way. It's yes, quite a house. Yes, and- but Jerry. Quite, Jerry, I think he deserved it. He was—he was a, he was a uh, like I said, I got nothing bad to say about the guy. Uh, I heard people moan and groan and complain about different things, and then you have guys talk about and put him over really big. But I just think he was, to me personally, he was always a class act. When I went through my divorce from my kid's mom, he was—he was right there and giving me advice and ribbing with me. And there, but he was—he was just always a class act. And I can never thank him enough for for getting me involved in the business and introducing me to some of the craziest times. I I sit and tell my beautiful wife, Robin, I sit and tell her some of the stories, the the things that that went on. And she looked at me and she says, you're crazy. Y'all were involved in doing that. So, (laughs) Okay, well, uh, and and I I want to say something really quickly uh, about Jerry Jarrett because uh, he has been silent for a very long time, and uh, actually, I think burned all all of his uh, uh, wrestling paperwork and all this. And, and once he made the decision to to get out of it, uh, he was out. And unbeknownst mm-hmm. to him, for for many months, that uh, goof Bruce Pritchard, uh, who worked for Vince McMahon. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of a an assistant, a coffee boy, really, for for Vince yeah. and the crew. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they would ask for his input, and he became, you know, brother love that character, and did really well with that. But when Jarrett went up there and was given uh, some power, and you'll notice that around that time, you know, that's when uh, not you know, and this in part had to do with Vince being investigated for steroids, but Jarrett really pushed for guys like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart who were intercontinental type guys feuding in the, in uh-huh. the mid card or the or the just under the main event to push those guys to the to the top and make it work and if you look at the direction WWE now with guys like AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan on top that is a legacy that has continued oh yes yeah Jerry Jarrett was he was never the the believer that you had to have nothing but the big you know, Hulk Hogan, uh, uh, Ultimate Warrior type. You can't. You don't have to have those big, huge bodies. As long as the guy is athletic and can tell a story in the ring, he always was a real strong believer in ring psychology, telling the story, 
taking the people to where you need to take them, telling the story you have laid out, and and going on to the next week. Instead of this, you know, just coming in and beating on people or climbing on top of the ropes and everybody does it and jumps off and this type of thing. Yeah, Nigeria. yeah, yeah. I, and I'm sorry, but his, you made me think of something. Uh, you know, he he. You say that he was uh, perfect for the wrestling business. He was almost unusual for the wrestling business because he was an, uh, an intellectual and really into literature, and and mm-hmm. uh, was you know uh, was familiar with with William Shakespeare and could and still sometimes when I talk to him he'll he'll quote you know a William Shakespeare sonnet or a play, and it's just phenomenal. But I think that that unique approach to storytelling. And not only with the Saturday morning show, which kept you tuning in each and every week to follow these these incredible wild cast of characters, but also the Monday shows themselves, because they ran every week, would often end with a cliffhanger or some kind of, uh, yeah. you know, if not in the main event, then earlier in the, in, in the mid card to lure you back in the next week. Uh, yeah, something in the mid card. That that's that's going to be your main event. That's coming up as your main event, and sometimes you would blow off something in the main event. But then you got a guy, maybe a guy beats the daylights out of Dundee, who then is got he's gunning for Lawler. There's your next opponent. You know, you cycle him through. He he always left the crowd wanting more, and he just he seemed to have a, the ability to keep his his thumb on the pulse of the wrestling fans. And I will never, never forget when I first was was hanging around his office in Nashville. He told me, he said, Ken, never put logic in an illogical business. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. very, very true. Yeah. Do not put logic in an illogical business. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, uh, yeah, it's very good. Well, and I think. You know, when you when you had a guy like Lawler who could do promos and and almost take any crazy scenario and make it sound reasonable that, yeah, okay, that makes sense that that would happen. Um, Because I think I think fans were a lot more savvy than some people give them credit for. And if something, you know, if there were plot holes and stuff that didn't quite track, uh, I think the fans would pick up on it because, you know, the wrestling fans were very special and that they lived and breathed it, you know, the, but, you know, and, but Jared was also great at getting the casual fans in and that's, you know, because whether or not you were actually watching that Saturday morning show, you know, every single minute that show was on and it almost every, you know, it was just like a tradition, ah, flip it on wrestling. And and it would be on, and some members, you know, some members of the family would be watching it kind of off and on. And then that's when you knew when you got the sellout because you would get the six or six or seven thousand people who were coming every week, and you would get that extra four thousand people, the casual yeah. fans who would be hooked into the, to uh, Jarrett's latest storyline. Uh, just a, a, I think overall, just a really brilliant storyteller that that doesn't get his just due. I I have I agree. He's he is definitely uh, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know how they how they could work it as an angle. I think he deserves to be in the WWS Hall of Fame. I mean, I think he is he is a classic promoter. That you, I don't think there's anybody. If anybody wants to learn how to promote wrestling, 
that should study some of Jerry Jarrett's tactics and the way that he did things. And if you could get him to talk, sit down and talk with you, and you could learn from it, I mean, he, I think he could teach, teach promoting and teach the psychology to people. And I think the business would be much better for it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, of, and, and and some people say, "Well, he talks so slow and methodic." Well, you know, first of all, he's from the South, um, and Jarrett is the type of guy. When I ask him something, he will give me a a very candid answer, uh, very detailed. The only thing that sometimes he, you know, it gets a little mixed up because. Not, not, and I'm, I'm not saying it's because of his age. Uh, it's just those guys lived life in the fast lane, and I'm not talking party-wise, but they're going from town to town, writing the television yeah. on the fly. And we as, you know, especially me being a super fan and, and a big mark <laughs> that I am, you know, I remember the dates. That's the only thing that he has trouble with sometimes is when it happened, but he remembers mm-hmm. what happened. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, you talk about guys who developed uh, under him and made these tr- this transformation. And right, I guess, around the time you started – Perennial jobber Coco Ware turns heel yep. and becomes Sweet Brown Sugar, and uh, just unbelievable the strides that he made as he with the heel psychology was just tremendous. And you know, and he had the shaved head now and the goatee, and of course they paired him with Hart. You know, with a, he uh, switched heel uh, as a special referee uh, and and about that made Lawler leave town momentarily. And sided with the Dream Machine, and and uh, and another guy too, Rick Rude, who was green as grass and had no. Oh person- yeah, he was. Yeah, had no personality at all, but he, Jared developed him. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, and Coco, kid, I want to ask you about Rude really quickly. Have you ever seen a guy come into the territory so unpolished, and then uh, he came in, I believe, in I want to say March of 84 and you know i don't know if you remember he was he he came out and he would before he was doing his swivel you know that he that was a big heat magnet Mm -hmm. in wwf later he was trying to do this dance and it was so stiff and awkward and they quickly i think jared told him boy don't do that ever again but (laughs) but uh but rick had been one of those mids he was he had been in atlanta as a prelim guy he is. He was working in Mid South, and he was part of that legendary trade deal that sent the Rock and Roll yeah. Express and Cornet to Mid South. And for what? And, and it's a. It's another example of Jarrett looking at this guy who's built like almost no one else in wrestling, like lean but muscular. And he goes this. And he sat down with Rick, and he goes, Rick, you're proud of your body, right? And he goes, I, I, I damn right. I, I work really hard for this body. And he goes and. Let me get this. I'm just, I'm just guessing. When you walk into a gym or a bar, and you know, a nightclub, you're, you're probably, you probably got a bit of a swagger, don't you? And he goes, well, I, I'm, I show off my body. And he goes, that's all you got to do, Rick. And he goes, and he goes, and I saw the look in Rick's eyes because he had an idea of what a ba- what a heel or a bad guy was supposed to do when really all Rick had to do was be himself <laughs> and because yeah. he had such natural heel charisma and of course just turned the volume up to 11 and he and from he went from being in I think the first or second match or maybe the mid card to he and Lawler I think drawing one of the only sellouts of 1984 by the summer 
uh, I believe you're right. I believe that it was the only one. And, you know, another thing that helped him, too, was I think um, – remember the little girl that was with him, Angel? Yes. The way he would talk to her, it was just on the – it was like it wasn't abusive, but it was kind of demeaning. And he just had this like, you know, you should be worshiping me. Look at me. You should be worshiping me. And he'd hold her in front of him and that kind of thing. He played the coward heel to be as big as he is. <laughs> so great. Jarrett, Jarrett fine-tuned him week by week. He just kept tuning, tuning. tuning. And by the time he left uh, Memphis, the Memphis region, Rick Rude was – polished enough where i mean look at what he did in the wwf i mean he wound up being a big star there so jared i it's amazing uh, the people you know you mentioned coco uh look what he did with uh somebody like pork chop cash he took pork chop and and put him with coke with a dream machine and they did uh, the bruise brothers (laughs) Uh, yeah i remember the video to introduce the bruise brothers was uh do you know you know that school when we at Woodstock said there was actually a school in Memphis yeah, called Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. And we shot the shot the thing where they threw the paper up in the air. The kids had gotten up from their seats and were looking out the window at us. Uh, the TV station got a phone call about these people out there, these wrestling people out there throwing papers around in their front yard. And, so and, and I got then, called on the carpet for that. And then, I remember well, telling Lawler, I said, I said, I'm about to get fired over here. <laughs> I said, we, we picked them all up. We picked everything up and when we left. And he uh, just laughed. He said, don't worry about it. Well, and what about the uh, the scene in the pool hall where Dream Machine steals a kiss from uh, an African-American lady, which uh, in, in Memphis at the time uh, probably wasn't that accepted. But again, that's just Memphis kind of pushing the envelope there. Yep. And and then I hate to I hate to take things in on a somber turn, but one of the funniest moments ever in Memphis wrestling history, which covers a lot of ground, the funeral for the Bruise Brothers. <laughs> Do you remember that when they hey, when they came back as? The, oh yeah, I, I shot that, and I, actually that's my voice on there talking. <laughs> I did the commentary on it, and I remember. Jimmy Hart looked at that and he looked at me and he says, I can't believe you did this. And had that, that woman says, and they were good boys. Yes. <laughs> yes. They, 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 were, they, they were, yeah, that, that was, uh, the Jula they, Duke, they were good boys. Jula Duke, Jula Duke's like, did you ever wonder when your number comes up? <laughs> now get out of here. <laughs> that was, I mean, we went to, went to actually went to a, funeral home and then and the guy said okay i don't mind i don't care and all he wanted me to do was make sure that his sign got in the video so his sign was in the video so that's all i had to do right oh my god that was yeah and, and and that's another one of those classic heart probos where he comes out and he goes you know and his voice is cracking and he's he's like Lance, I, I i don't know if you're aware but I, we, we've lost we've lost the bruise brothers <laughs> he said, but behind every dark cloud is a silver lining, baby. <laughs> and then he introduces. Turn up that music. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, uh, yeah. And I don't know if you, yeah, I think he accused you of being asleep upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause the well, what happened was I told him, I said, we don't have the music. And he said, okay. He said, I'll cover it. And that's what, that's how he covered it was blaming me for being asleep. You're asleep, Ken Barnett. You're asleep at the switch up there. And I'm looking, I'm looking out the window down at him like, Jimmy. 
Uh, you know, people ask me, I, I got into like a little bit of a, uh, Twitter, a little bit of a heated exchange because some guy was claiming that world-class wrestling, uh, which was, was, was airing in Memphis, um, I, uh, I believe starting in fall of 82, early 83. And, it, and they did have some better than average production values. Uh, the, uh, camera work was was sort of groundbreaking and that the cameraman would would actually step into the ring uh d- during a match which i thought uh, from a fan's point of view i would think that that would sort of be uh, g- exposing the business a bit you know because if the sport's so dangerous how can a cameraman be inside yeah. the ring uh but uh, so he th- he thinks that that was the most influential promotion on the direction Vince McMahon took the WWF in 84 and 85. I, I'm like, man, you're dead wrong. If you look at the entrances that Jerry Lawler and the fabulous ones were making at the Coliseum with the lights dimmed and the, and Lawler still has done entrances that have never been topped uh, in WWF. Yeah. If you look at the, uh, the, all the music videos and the way they would put a highlights package together it was so far ahead of its time. It was groundbreaking. It was in- innovative. And before you knew it, every promotion was slowly starting to copy that Memphis style. And they were also really the first ones, I think, to inject a lot of humor into a show, you know, with Lawler's promos and then later with Hart's promos and Lance Russell being the perfect straight man for it all. And yeah. and on top of that, you had Dave Brown who was a little bit, uh, obviously a lot more key, a uh, low key than, than, than Lance adding that class and credi- credibility to the show. Well, what he also added in Memphis people that uh, you, you mentioned the credibility, him being the weatherman at channel five and being the top weatherman in the whole region, then going on the wrestling show and having people, you know, saying things to him, like they would say to him sometimes. And you would think, is, is this, did they plan that? And the, People at home would always ask, did Dave Brown know they were going to say that? And I'd always just got KFA everybody. No, no, Dave didn't know anything about that. Well, that that landed me in some hot water with Mr. Brown. I don't know if you remember the promo uh, that I cut on Randy Hales where I uh, said the word retarded uh, several times. And Dave (laughs) was increasingly getting hot. And I thought he was working with me. Uh, and so I kept repeating it and the, and it's funny cause the line actually came from Randy Hales. He told me before we went out, uh, because Randy had a very unique manner of speaking. Uh, first of all, I do want to say, I, I, I respect Randy Hales. He was an incredibly hard worker. Uh, he gave his, uh, heart and soul to the business and he may not have been the most, uh, polished speaker, uh, but he loved wrestling, and after after being such a student of it, actually had a really good mind for the business. Uh, but uh, some people, I think, suspected that maybe because of his his speech impediment that he had, uh, maybe perhaps thought that maybe he was a little slow. He was not slow. Uh, but I was the first one, I think, to come out and say that. And but I never would have gone that direction had he not told me to do it. But he knew that that would 
would get some heat. And so. Oh, I, it got a lot of heat. What it did. <laughs> well, a lot of heat on me with Dave it originally did. for 20 years. Dave, Dave and I, I was so relieved that we were able to finally have lunch last year and, and bury the hatchet. But, but he was so hot at me for, about that. But I honestly, uh, you know, he, Randy told me to, to say that, uh, that Randy was retarded and, I went further with it and said that he was the illegitimate retarded son of Eddie Marlin. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then Dave says, quit saying that word. And I just keep saying it over and over and over. And then, and after we go to a break, Dave's walking up to me and I'm, and I'm like, Hey Dave, wasn't, you know, wasn't that great? And Dave Brown cursed at me. I, I which was one of the most <laughs> shocking moments of my entire life. I mean, I, I, I didn't know Dave Brown was capable of uttering a, cur- a curse word. <laughs> Uh, well, he can he can't when he really gets upset, you yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, Randy, I think Randy has been uh, has been maligned a little bit, and he he's he's had a he's had a good run, and he he like you said, he loved the business, he loved the business probably as much as anybody, and loved the people in the business. Uh, uh, he been a staunch defender for Eddie Marlin and uh, the history with Eddie and Jerry Jarrett and. Uh, Lawler and all of them, and I, I just think I wish Randy nothing but the best. I, I know he's doing a his own podcast now and doing some other things, but I'm I just wish him the best, and I I love him like a brother because we went and saw the circus when he was he came through here when he was working with uh, Cole Circus Cole Brothers. Yeah, that's right. He so, and Dundee was involved in that, right? Dundee I, Dundee was part of the I think the front people booking it or something for a year or maybe two years. Uh, we didn't see him here. We actually saw Randy and sat through the show and talked with him, you know, in between the acts for the circus when, uh, when they were here in Melbourne, just outside of where we live. Okay. So he was, uh, I think the world of Randy, I always have, I, when he was just a kid running around the ring and helping with programs and that kind of thing, he, he's always been, uh, he's always been a good guy and I just, I wish him nothing but the best. Uh, Ken, and really quick, you know, we talked about these Saturday mornings and what it was like. I, 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 of course, remember two memorable angles, one of which was on a Saturday when uh, Lawler was turning heel and, and he was upset because you had showed a video of him looking bad and he came up and, uh, and manhandled you in the, in the control room. Uh, can you, can you break down that morning for us? And, and also, can you describe what a typical Saturday morning was like for you from the moment you got to the station to the time the show ended? Well, usually when uh, it, it would depend on if I was editing highlights or if Randy West was handling him as far as what time I would get there. But I was usually there no later than about 8 o'clock, uh, getting highlight tapes out, getting recording tapes to engineering upstairs and to engineering downstairs because we would record it an out-of-town show, the, what we call the bicycle tape. Uh, we recorded on two-inch videotape and then also on three-quarter-inch downstairs. And then I would uh, start looking for whoever had the pencil and who was, who was doing the TV show and where we could get some copies made, uh, sit down, go over the show, go over the individual interviews. And a lot of times I would go back, if someone was new, um, like when the Rockers first came in town, I went and talked to Janetti and Michaels about, you know, how animated are you? How do you how do you do your interviews? Tell me how you do your interviews because I wanted to make sure I had the right camera distance and camera angles. 
Uh, and then after that, I usually try to leave myself about 20 minutes before the show to go talk with the floor director, uh, Bob Crone. Make sure Bob. Yeah, I remember Bob. Bob, Bob knew where we were going. If we were going to do something crazy like going outside in the parking lot, which we did so many times, and or well, we did a few times, and different things. If somebody was going to, uh, I don't know if you remember the time Lawler did the uh, where he was dressed up like a lady in the ring, in the sat at ringside, yeah, and jumped in the ring, letting Bob know those kind of things so that he could be watching for him and leave a spot for somebody that type of thing, and. Uh, but then about uh, about 10 minutes till, I'd, I'd go upstairs and uh, we'd check IFBs with Lance and Dave and I'd give everybody their marching orders up in the booth and then we'd just get ready to get started doing the show. Uh, now, as far as the, that Saturday with Lawler, that was, uh, he came in and um, I had actually edited the highlight tapes that week and he, he came and looked at the tape and he said, okay, he said, here's what I want to do. And he talked about and he said i'm I'll, i'm gonna keep saying don't show it don't show it don't show it he said i'm gonna call your name he said i'm gonna call you out on this i was like okay and he said he said and then he said i want you to have bob that they need to have a cable where i said you're coming to the booth aren't you and he said yep i said okay and uh i said but i can't i can't put a light on a camera i said we're gonna have to shoot it with just the natural available light he said that'll be okay he said that'll give it more of a natural feel yeah so uh so i had I, after talking with him, he said, and he told me, he said, I'm just going to give you a shove. He said, when you get up, bump the chair back. He said, he said, that way you can take a couple of steps back. He said, and just, he said, let yourself just naturally go with it. I said, okay. And that's basically all we talked about, about it. And then, uh, I had to go talk with Bob Crone, make sure I told him, I said, we're going to be going to the, taking a camera to the booth with Waller. I said, make sure the long cable is on the camera. So, and he got all the long cables where the handheld camera could come with him. And it, looks disorganized but i think that was more of a natural feel to it mm. yeah. and when jerry came and everybody all the engineers upstairs like he's coming upstairs he can't come up here he can't he can't touch stuff up there what's he doing everybody upstairs was freaking out and he comes upstairs and comes through the door and jerry had maybe been in the booth by that time he maybe been in the booth once during the show <laughs> yeah okay you know i mean he just didn't come upstairs and he came in the stairs and he's like yelling, starts yelling. And I'm like, I said, I'm just doing what I'm told. It's on the format to show the tape. And when he shoved me, uh, I, I had, when I stood up, I had not bumped the chair hard enough. I took about a half a step back after when he shoved me. And he shoved me pretty hard, but it wasn't hard enough to knock me down. But I took that half a step back, and over the chair I went, all the way to the floor. <laughs> and I have never seen his eyes get so big because I think he thought I was hurt. But I came right straight back up. And I, my eyes were about to pop out of my head, and I was looking, at it and I said, I said, what are you doing? I said, you can't do that. Don't put your hands on me. You can't, can't come up here and do this kind of thing. And that's when he threatened, you know, threatened me with the point and all this kind of thing. And then he left from upstairs, and everybody at the whole TV station, are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, my God, he put his hands on me. He put his hands on him. And uh, that was that was a, a classic, classic moment, and the switchboard downstairs lit up. <laughs> One call was from my youngest daughter. Jerry Lawler's beating up on my daddy. Oh, so. my. And sure, did you have a couple of uh, uh, one of those sleazy injury attorneys calling to see if you wanted to file a lawsuit? <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah. And, and I remember that well. I uh, because, yeah, it was very unique. Uh, and, and it's funny because years later, people made such a big deal 
uh, when the NWO invaded the control room. Uh, but of yeah. course, it's one of those many things that Memphis did first and did better, because, especially because, you know, and you mentioned a very key thing. Uh, one of the th- great things about Memphis was uh, things weren't overproduced, uh, especially when it came to now, you know, the, the slick video packages were great. But when it, so a lot of times when an angle would unfold, uh, it was really rough around the edges. And well, you know, you know why a lot of that was that way. The only person on our crew the entire time, and this includes our director, sound man, everybody. No one was smart to anything except for Bob Crone. Wow. And we would only tell Bob what we needed to tell him so that he could be prepared and have people in the right positions. But everything, we, we kept them totally in the dark. And that way you'd see a lot of times the camera shot, the camera would be moving, and it'd be, it looked spontaneous, which, which is what we wanted. <clears throat> we, didn't, we didn't want the slick, you know, going into the control booth and having lights turned on where you can see yeah. everything and see everybody. We didn't want that kind of thing. We wanted it to be, you know, the TV control booth is always dark, and everybody always talks about it being dark. So that's the reason we wanted the low light and the camera coming up the steps. You could see the camera, the guy walking up the steps and everything. We, that's the reason we tried to have a, a non-slick production. It gave it more realism, and it gave people more, like they were getting in touch with a personal like you said earlier, it, it was more of a personal issue between the wrestlers, or in this case, it was Lawler and me, and it, it was just, it, it gave it that personal feel, which made it more real and gave a more believability to it, and it helped sometimes with the with the crowds at the Coliseum. Yeah, yeah, and well, and I think the perfect example of that would be the angle to bring Jerry Lawler back after dropping the Loser League Town match, and Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell uh, beat up Jim Jamison and David Johnson, and then they beat up referee Jeff Jarrett, and then that brings out Jerry Jarrett, who and they go for his his one good eye, and yeah. that was and, and I, I I interviewed Jeff Jarrett right shortly before the Hall of Fame ceremony earlier this year, and he was saying you know he got to the he got to the <laughs> they told him to be at TV. And he gets there. And he's not even in the business. He's still playing basketball for his, for his college his college team. And 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 they and they tell him about you know forty five minutes before he's about to go on. He goes, and it works so much better that way because had they told me the night before, I I would I wouldn't have slept. I would have overthought about it. And he go, you know. And Jim Jamison said that he had no idea that Jerry Jarrett was hitting the ring. And and I think all of that. It, it was better for that because it came off more yeah. realistic. It had, it gave it a grittier, unexpected feel and they had to do, you know, cause Memphis was, was pretty big for the most part about sticking to those stipulations because if you bring Lawler back and it's not something huge, you you're wrecking the loser leave town gimmick. Yeah. Um, and so they needed to do something personal. And then Jerry Jarrett goes out there and, and, and is in tears and 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 it's also one of those rare occasions where Dave Brown raises his voice and is like, "Hey, come on!" Uh, yeah, which you never heard Dave do. And it, 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 the whole—that's one of my favorite Memphis angles, which also led to the last sellout at the Mid South Coliseum. Yeah. Well, that I, to to give you a little backstory on that, Dave Brown was not told about <gasps> oh about my. that. That was all strictly off the cuff. And I'm in his ear 
And I said, Jared's high, Jared's high. And that's when he screams, come on now, stop that. Oh. And then if you notice on the, if you had noticed on the show, a couple of times he glances up towards the booth because I've got the glass windows where I can see the studio from upstairs. And he's like glancing up there. And, and then after the show, he comes upstairs. Dave Brown comes upstairs. He says, why in the hell did you not tell me about that? <laughs> like, Dave, I didn't have time. Yeah. But that was, that was an authentic, that was just, that was him fitting the moment. And, and, for him to yell, to, uh, to raise his voice, was so, so seldom. I mean, I, you probably yes. count on one hand and have fingers left over. Yep. That it just gave it so much realism, you know, that, you know, these guys were trying to gouge his eye out. So it was, uh, yeah, that was a perfect, perfect way to bring Lawler back. Oh, wow. So I'm not the, I'm not the first person that Dave Brown got a little hot with backstage. <laughs> He, he got a little, and I, I saw him get a little. He got a little hot with uh, Jarrett, and uh, he get a little hot with Lawler. I mean, but it was always short lived because he was so professional. He'd come out and he'd say, "Why in the world are you not telling us about this stuff?" And Jerry Jarrett would look at him and smile, and he'd say, "Because I want a natural reaction." And Dave would just kind of throw his hand up in the air with the papers and walk away from him. And but then it's like twenty minutes later, he'd be saying, "That turned out to make good TV. Oh, That's I, good TV." Absolutely. Because I, I don't know if Dave would have reacted in in the same way, because he you know he you know Lance would would always turn get excited, but but Dave would would keep things uh, uh, calm, and I yeah. and I and I don't know if he would have yelled like that into the microphone, which he rarely did. You know, a lot of a lot of wrestling announcers today, I feel like you know it's all like energy, have energy. But if if you're always you know full uh, you know excited about everything, how is the audience going to differentiate when something's really important and 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 personal? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that and that angle that and that was at a time you know when when Crockett and McMahon were signing away so much talent from everywhere. Memphis was one of those uh, you know a lot of promote, promotions were going under, and Memphis, Memphis was still doing really really well. Uh, largely, I think, based on the drawing power of, of Lawler and him still being the, the hometown hero. Uh, but for that, you know, the, but the crowds at the Coliseum were averaging around probably 4,000 around that time. Yeah, and to yeah, 4,000, yeah. Yeah, and well, and actually they had drunk him, because uh, I think the original plan, they were going to try to have Lawler take the entire six months off. Um to you know to spark attendance for the summer and but the but the they had dropped to about two thousand without without Jerry there yeah in fact there was, I think we had one one week we had tw- uh, like twelve hundred was that with big red all we had he- that building look that building looked empty it looked like a funeral it was like oh my god there's nobody here oh man and then and then to go to, to have that kind of jump from about 1200 to 1500 fans to an overflow crowd is yeah. is, is remarkable and uh i think it's one of the, my all-time favorite angles on memphis tv uh i want to ask you really and i know this is a loaded question and i'm catching you off guard what was what what are some of your maybe your two or three favorite segments or angles ever uh when you were at when you were in the booth when i was in the booth uh let's see favorite two or three favorite angles i think the 
the one with Eddie Gilbert and Lawler with the car where he tried to run Lawler over in the parking lot. Oh, my. <laughs> Did you think that, he killed that him? One, uh, well, it, <laughs> I tell you what, I had to leave the booth and go downstairs and talk to the police officers from across the street at the precinct. Yeah. People had called them. They were coming over to the station. Um, I think that one, I think the uh, the dumping the flower on uh, on Lance was definitely one. And I think the other one was they were struggling so hard, so, so hard to switch Dundee back heel. He, they couldn't get him heel. And he came on TV and had uh, ha- both hands had rings on them, these big gaudy looking things that you'd buy at the flea market. And he busted, he got in the ring, Jim Jameson was going to wrestle somebody, and poor Jimmy, he took the hard way from him. Dundee busted that boy's face up so bad. I mean, just beat the living daylights out of him in the ring. And I felt so sorry for Jim, but that switched him heel. Dundee was finally heel. Well, and that's so why, I think, yeah, and that's why when I was talking with Jerry Jarrett, and this is before, and and uh, I, as a lot of our listeners know, because I interviewed Jim about the last sellout at the Coliseum and yeah. the angle that led to it, and how he was a he was a key man. And I also interviewed Calhoun about about it as well. Um, and this is before, you know, I did I did, I knew that Ken, I, I I knew that Jim had been ill, but I didn't know just how. Sick. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, it was that was a shock. He really was, was. and uh, but I was I was just talking to Jarrett casually on the phone, and he you know and he actually mentioned you as well. He was like, you know, I I I feel bad uh, looking back because I I don't know if I thanked everyone enough, you know. And I'm talking about from the guys who who set up the chairs at the arena to the people who worked the concession stand. To uh, Ken Parnell up in the booth, to Randy West, uh, my you know the, one of my producers and, and uh, cameraman, and put together a lot of the music videos. To the guys who set up the ring, Paul. He, he mentioned Paul Morton. He goes, you know, this doesn't sound like a big deal, but uh, if if uh, if a truck if the ring truck broke down, Paul Morton would ensure that somehow, some way, that ring would get to the town. Um, and just mentioned, you know, everybody. And he goes, and wasn't there a guy, uh, he goes, I refuse to say the term job man because it's disrespectful. I, I call it enhancement talent. Wasn't there a guy named, uh, his name was Jameson. And I said, yeah, Jim Jameson. And he goes, to me, he was just as important as Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee and the fabulous ones in, in the eighties because he did such a brilliant job of getting people over and uh, on TV, especially if they did, if, if a guy was debuting on television, Jameson was the guy he was in, who was the opponent because he would yeah. do, he was such a team player. He would, t- he would, you know, take a bit a beating, get up, go over and thank the guy, <laughs> you know, for a match. And, and I know a lot of the boys speak of him in glowing terms as well, because he, would just do anything for the team. You know, he, he, he was a very, he was, he was a cog in the machine, but, but very important. Uh, because yeah, he was, yeah, he was very important. Yeah. Uh, speaking of guys debuting, 
and having a, a memorable <laughs> a memorable first appearance on Memphis Wrestling, Randy Macho Man Savage. Now this is what oh, you, yeah. this is what you keep you you tip me off with a little bit beforehand. Uh, now Randy had been cutting these these incredible shoot promos that you know as a young fan watching the show, uh, the ICW show because it came on an hour before Memphis TV. Uh, a lot of the promos were go- were completely going over my head. I, I didn't understand what he was talking about uh, when he would say Tojo Yamamoto or his real name, Harold Watanabe, uh, and, and and all these inside terms. He would show up at, you know, he knew that Lawler would be on the road to Louisville and he would take out an ICW cameraman and he would stand on Lawler's front, in front, in front of Lawler's front door and start pounding to go come on, queen, come out and fight me and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, he's promoting this match between he and Lawler. Uh, and uh-huh. then when ICW folds, uh, Jarrett calls him and says, Randy, would you like to come work for me? And he said, Randy got really emotional. He goes, how, how can you forgive me and, and offer me this job when I've been saying all these things about you and, and, and your, and your crew. And Jarrett goes, Randy, you have been promoting a showdown with Jerry Lawler for three years, better than I ever could. It's a match the fans want to see. And all you have to do is just apologize to Lawler and all will be forgiven. And then they went on and did business. Uh, can you describe for me the first interview that uh, that you taped with with uh, the Macho Man? Well, let me let me give you just a little bit of a backstory. I knew nothing about him talking with Jerry Jarrett until Saturday morning before that the Monday of their first match. And I see on the format, special guest. I'm like, who's the special guest? He's, and he looks at me and he says, Savage. I said, Randy? I said, that nutcase is coming in the building? <laughs> I knew nothing about anything. He comes in and does this interview, pumping the match up. Laura comes out and Savage runs off. They don't make any contact in the studio. So as far as I can tell from both of their reactions, they're still pissed at each other. And this is serious. So then I'm like, you're booking this as in a match? And so he he said, yeah, yeah we, we're going to do that. So we come in. We don't do any interviews. We usually shoot interviews for the other towns before the matches. We don't do any interviews with Savage or Miss Elizabeth or, or Angelo or anybody. They go down. He and Lawler have a barn burner match. Barn burner. I mean, the people loved it. Probably, I think it went like 28, 29 minutes, something like that. We go back to the back. I take, get all my equipment from under the ring, all the tapes and power supplies and everything for the camera, get everything to the back, getting ready to start packing up where I can go home. And Eddie Marlin comes in. I need you to shoot an interview with Savage for TV. He said, I, I just, I need you to shoot it right now. He said, while he's, he's still in his, still in his tights and everything. I said, okay. So I get my camera up ready and I'm, I'm like, I don't know anything about this guy. So we go up, he's in one of the little small rooms in the front. I hand him a microphone, and I step back, and I said, do you want it in there? you want it out here? He said, no. He said, right here, right here. So he's pacing back and forth, rubbing on his mouth, running, rubbing on his beard. He said, just let me know when you're rolling. And he knows enough about TV. So I'm like, and I went, three, two, one, rolling. And he just paces back and forth for a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden, like a cat, he lunges out the door puts his hand on my chest and literally slams me against the wall. Now, I've got a $25,000 camera on my shoulder, 
he slams down, and he says, you know, he's like, let me tell you something. You get this to Lawler. I want Lawler to see this. You make sure that Lawler sees this. You understand me? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm thinking, this nutcase is going to kill me. He steps back, and he does the interview, finishes up, real heated interview, about two or three minutes. And then when he finishes, he throws the microphone at me. And as he throws it, it hits me. And I, I catch it. You know, he hits me on the chest, and I catch the cable and everything. And he's like, now get out of here. So I roll the camera to black and stop the camera. And I'm grabbing my stuff thinking, I'm going, I'm going home. I don't know if I want to be around this guy. And as I go around the corner, Jerry Jarrett and Eddie Marlin are standing there dying laughing. <laughs> dying laughing. And I'm like, what? And Jarrett said, he said, classic. He said, I loved your reaction. I said, why didn't you tell me? He said, no. He said, what I, <laughs> I, what I wanted, once again, was your natural reaction. He said, in that natural reaction, and Randy West was back in the other room, and Randy was kind of peeking around the corner looking at me like, uh-oh, they just did that to Ken. And, I mean, I, I, was, I went home pissed. I was pissed off. It's like, what in the world? They're trying to get me killed. This nutcase is slamming me against the wall. But do you know that next Saturday, Randy made a point to come in before anybody, he was there before Lawler and everybody, came in, searched me out, and he's like, brother, you okay? He said, he said, I didn't, he said, I didn't mean to hurt you. I said, no, it didn't hurt me. I said, it took me off guard. And do you, do you know that from that day forward, Randy Savage and I became very, very good friends. Wow. Very, very good friends. Wow. It was amazing. And he, I even sat down with Elizabeth. He and Elizabeth came over to my apartment and I was working on a, a video for the rock and roll, not one rock, it was for Lawler, working on a video for Lawler. And they came over and I showed them how I would sync up things and and to help them with their TV production. Because I think they were still trying to do some ICW tape shows or something at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and to show them how to edit this. And we spent the, an afternoon, it was a Saturday afternoon because he wasn't booked in Nashville. And I'm telling you, Randy and I became very, very good friends. Very, very good friends after that. But I'm that that night when I left that building, I I was like I I don't know if I'm going to even work this company anymore. I don't know if I want to be around here. These people are crazy, because he literally, I mean, at the time I was about 220 pounds, and he literally, with one hand on my chest, slammed me back against the wall. I, I literally came off my feet against the wall like a cartoon. And somehow or another, I held onto the camera and kept everything rolling. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it uh, like, and if, and if somehow, if you had broken a rib or, or, you know, if the camera had slammed up against your face and you had broken a nose, that would have been one thing. Because uh, in my experiences, Lawler and Jarrett, they, they would have gone, oh, that's a shame. But you know what? It's good for the business. <laughs> But if yep. you had dropped the camera, that would not oh, have been yeah. good for the business. What have you done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As long as the camera was okay. Uh, but it's funny. Jared admits, he told me, he goes, you know, I was a shit sir. And he goes, you know, Lawler and Dundee, when they first had their big feud in 77, I would, I would fuel those flames about yeah. you know and i i would help you know uh i would tell dundee something that lawler said about you know god who's this guy I think he is I'm, I'm i'm the king i'm the one who built built the house at the mid-south coliseum and you know and dundee in it and it gave it more realism uh because they really were both wanting to you know they were essentially both fighting for that top spot okay maybe not literally fighting but it made the matches a lot more snug 
Well, I, yeah, the, yeah, they were they were very snug at times, very snug. Those two guys, I think, off and on during their careers. Um, I mean, up until I, I don't know if it still is now, but off and on during the career, especially when I was with them, those two guys would go from liking each other. I don't, I can't say they ever would love each other, but from liking each other to being at the point where they would just as soon shoot each other. I mean, they disliked each other to the point where they didn't care if they lived or died. It was really that, and that was, and that was all a shoot. Those two guys did not like each other for a long, long time. Um, and another thing that, that Jarrett would do, he would keep uh, some of the pre-tape in for, for like when the uh, empty arena match unfolded. And to me, uh, what, what, what makes it is Lance. Uh, and I believe that was Randy West who was there. And, yeah. and he's like, uh, and the, you know, he's like, I don't, you know, let's just see if this, uh, crazy thing comes off. And then he just casually lights up a cigarette, which he, you know, I, he told me later, he so regretted that because he quits, you know, eventually he quit smoking and worked very hard to do so. But for years people would, <laughs> would ask him, you know, you really should quit smoking Lance because they were thinking of that of that intro to the empty <laughs> arena match where he puts out the cigarette. And I even, I, uh, Lance, uh, before he passed away, we were communicating on Twitter and I love that Lance was, you know, embracing this new technology. And I made, uh, a little, uh, gif of him lighting up. And I said, you thought Jerry Lawler was good with fire in the mid South Coliseum. How cool was Lance Russell <laughs> as he lighted up, lighting up. And it would just, you know, it was, over, it was like a, it was like a five second loop of Lance lighting up. And, I, 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 and Lance goes, he sent me a message. He goes, Oh, Scott, I wish you hadn't done that. <laughs> he goes, now people are going to start it all over again. Asking me to quit smoking. Uh, I still to this day do you remember the the angle we did with Lawler supposedly he was drunk in his front yard yes and we had the beer cans and all that stuff in the front yard I still to this day somebody I'll run across somebody in Memphis and I it amazes me that somebody will say you're Ken Parnell you're and I'm like yeah yeah does Jerry has Jerry Lawler quit drinking it's like Jerry Lawler never drank yeah he's he, he he never, he never, it's never passed his lips. Never has. And I'm like, well, I saw him drunk in his front No. I said, if you watched the whole interview, you would have seen that. Right after that, he comes out and he was not, he was not drinking. So, well, Ken, I don't to know. this day, I still have people ask that. Well, Ken, I don't know if you remember, but this, what happened, and it's unfortunate that, that this is the way it, well, I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. But that was one of those days where Wimbledon, I believe, was, or maybe it could have been a big SEC football game because it was in November of 85. And how I, I, I am full of useless information, Ken. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember it was because Ric Flair was about to return to, to Memphis to defend the world title. And, and Lawler was trying to goad uh, Dundee into giving him a uh, shot at the Southern title so he could, uh, he could wrestle flair. And so the show about the first hour or 45 minutes of the show aired live as it normally would. And that angle aired in that portion. And then it, it's the only time I can think of that, that, that it, it went this way after the sporting event, the final part of the show aired later that afternoon where they did the reveal that Lawler was not really drunk. 
I think a lot of fans were irate and upset about it. And parents, you know, were obviously upset about for their kids uh, because, you know, to find, Law- <laughs> to find Jerry Lawler, who everybody knew his reputation for being a teetotaler, passed yeah. out. And Lance does such a great job. What in the Sam Hill are you doing? And, and, and for, and again, Lawler's acting skills. Holy cow. For a guy who's never been drunk. Pretty convincing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. It was. It was pretty convincing. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, but, it was, that was a that was a classic, and it it it, it turned a lot. A lot of people got turned off by, it, but a lot of people, a lot of people, once they saw the reveal and once it was confirmed, everybody that he was not drunk. It uh, uh, it it put more seats in. It put more butts in the seats that week. That's for sure. Well, and I think later on you guys, uh, did a, sh- uh, it was the entire Jerry Lawler show was a reveal of how you guys pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did the, showed him putting the, doing the makeup yeah. where he did the makeup uh, on the beard and doing all that stuff. Yeah. It showed all, we showed all of that. And that was because there were so many people irate that he just, I think we did an interview with one of the wrestlers, and the first segment of the rest of the show with the entire rest of the show was showing us pouring stuff out, beer out of the cans and throwing cans right. around the yard and that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. And Lawler putting on like the stubble, I think, uh, yep. cause it was, it was just after Halloween. So all this great makeup and, and stuff was read, readily available. And, uh, I remember Lawler like pouring all the, all the liquor bottles. And he's like, you don't think this stuff's going to kill my grass. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh uh and just re- really quickly ken I, gosh we've been talking forever uh some of your favorite promo guys besides Bachwinkle. uh favorite yeah nick Bachwinkle was a classic uh randy savage always did good uh michael hayes michael hayes was 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 really good and uh i guess probably one that that most people wouldn't even think about was Adrian Street. Mm. Adrian Street was those were just so classic and when he would kiss Lance it was just it would just everybody would just die laughing at him. Uh but Adrian Street I thought always did some some really unique interviews. And he was probably the toughest guy in the dressing room. <laughs> uh, by by there's no doubt about that because I mean uh, Billy, you remember Billy Robinson was in for yes, a while. Yes. We were talking to Billy about Adrian Street just before Adrian had even come in, and Billy was like, "He said that's a he's a shooter. He says he will hurt you." And I think Dundee was supposed to work with him first, and he told Dundee, he said, "He said be prepared because he will he will he'll wrestle your tights off." He said, "Didn't he said just just be prepared because if you don't go with him, he's going to take you there." Yeah. And I, I always wanted to see him and Tony Charles get together. I thought that would have oh. been a classic. Well, and Tony Charles and Billy Robinson, yeah, were well. Tony I mean, and and Dundee had a had a yeah. had a really good match at the Coliseum. Really good yeah. match. Yeah, and I think one in Jackson too, where they is that the spot you know that that amazing sunset flip spot where they 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 keep reversing it, yeah. and then Dundee ends up with the upper hand and and yeah. uh, all that they kind keep- of yeah. Uh, that was yeah. Amazing. That was that was one of those. I mean, and they talk about it. It's like I forget they they had a name for it. They had I don't know if they'd rehearsed it or if they'd just gone over it so many times in their head. But they had a name for it. And when they when he called the spot, he called it by the, that name. And they went into that where they were reversing and flipping and the sunset flips and it was. And you're sitting there and you're like, who? We, 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 you couldn't even hardly keep up with who was in charge. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, and, and I think that's that's one. Uh, even though attendance overall was down, I thought 1980 was one of Jarrett's uh, more creative, inspiring booking years because he he gave the public. Uh, something you know you can't replace Lawler, so give them something different for a while, and yeah. and and the matches you know having Billy Robinson as the CWA World Champion, even though Billy left with the belt, um, and supposedly the only person on the planet who ever could have legitimately taking taken it off him in a fight was his his wife in the divorce because uh, that was the excuse he gave Jared that when they got a divorce that she. <laughs> She took the belt. <laughs> but I don't know. Oh my god. But, I've not uh, heard that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's what yeah, that's what Jared told me. But uh but Tony Charles and uh Tony Charles and, and Robinson and, and the matches that Robinson had with Dundee Yeah. Were were just Yeah, Billy uh, was that was Billy was he was a classic worker too. I mean it's just uh it, most of them call him a shooter. He was a shooter. He could he could do just about anything. And you you would think with that much that much ability that he was not higher up the cards anywhere, but that was a guy that couldn't do, he couldn't do a promo. He just couldn't do a promo. Who's that? Uh, Billy Robinson. Oh, Billy. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but again, maybe he didn't need to be so, so good, you know? Yeah, uh, well, that's true. You know, he, he's, he's British. Um, I remember he talked really low. <laughs> yeah, uh, but was, if, but if everybody's yelling and screaming, and then this guy's out talking uh, with in a very low tone and and with the British accent, uh, that that's kind of cool in a way because it's something different. Yeah, but um, uh, and who who would you say is your overall? The, who was the total package in the ring on promos? Uh, just creative uh coming up with creative ideas uh who who would that be i would i mean i'd have to say lawler okay. i'd have to say lawler was just head and shoulders and then i think eddie gilbert is a close second oh cool yeah well eddie was the one who engineered my uh switch to the dark side yeah uh, uh, but but i think lawler as far as lawler could uh, he could do an interview. He could. You could tell him, Jerry. We need to fill ten minutes. No problem. Or we need a minute and a half. No problem. He could. He could hit. He could, as they call it, hitting the post. He could hit the post and do an interview in an exact time. He could fill time for you. He could talk about anything. He could have a match. I used to tell people he could have a match with a wet wash rag and make the wash rag look good. Yeah. Put the right wash rag over, and he could. He didn't look athletic. You look at him, you think he's just a normal guy. You know, he doesn't work out. He's not all beefed up and everything. But he could go out and with a guy like Nick Bockwinkel go 90 minutes mm-hmm. and not be winded. Yeah. And I saw him do many 60-minute Broadways with people, with Briscoe, Funk, uh, Flair. And I saw him do a couple with, with Bockwinkel. And, so, and he, to me, Lawler was the total package. He was, and I think it's unfortunate that um, – or it was fortunate for Memphis, but unfortunate, I guess, for maybe for Jerry's career. If he had been in one of the other associations, I think he could have gotten over to the point where he could have made a, a long-running world champion because he could have done any if they want him as a heel, babyface, whatever they want him as. I think he'd have been perfect. Yeah, he just he just he's a he's a con, and he's a consummate professional. So. Yeah, and and I think it's a tribute to him. By the time he did, because there was a lot of debate whether or not he could have ever gotten over 
up north uh, in WWF. And uh, Jarrett told me that actually Vince Sr. proposed the idea of Lawler going up there and working a program with Backlund and actually then having Backlund come to Memphis and uh, and have a title match. And uh, Jarrett declined because as much as he respected Backlund, he just didn't think that he would fit the Memphis style. Yeah, and 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 it, yeah, I think Backlund was a little too um, too flat footed, too grounded, and too too old school. I guess maybe that's the word for the eighties, seventies, and eighties wrestling in Memphis. But um, the fact that Lawler was able to go to WWF in late ninety three and then start working, you know, as a well, yeah, I guess yeah, he attacked Bret Hart. I think after the King of the Ring tournament in uh, in ninety three instantly became one of the top heels upon arrival and didn't, you know, and at this time, you know, he's a little older, uh, maybe a little, little pudgy around, around the middle. I love you King. Don't, don't come after me, but didn't have the look of the modern day WWF superstars who were still pretty juiced uh, to the gills at that point. And he got over anyway. He, you know, Jerry could have gotten over, anywhere and and you know you mentioned the Andy Kaufman thing the it would you know he went to Vince McMahon senior and wanted to do the the whole program there but no matter where Andy could have gone and and done the same deal it would not have had the impact it it, it only could have happened in Memphis with, you know with the Hollywood star coming to the south and yeah. no, with, I, I think so I think that it was it was the perfect location and it just between Kaufman's Kaufman's, which he was open to do anything. I mean, I'd, I'd said, listen to him. He would he would have done anything they wanted to do. I think they could have shaved his head. He wouldn't have cared. <laughs> he just he just so wanted to do anything, and and Lawler just loved the idea and the and the press. I mean, it was all over. Yeah. Uh, you know, CNN. Everybody was talking about it. Of course, then there was the Letterman incident. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and what was that like seeing that promo that you shot with uh, him talking about scrubbing the potatoes and washing the cabbage? <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. You know that airs on Letterman and all over the country. Saturday Night Live, I think it aired. Uh, that had to be pretty cool to see. Yeah, it was. It was uh, that was very cool. And uh, like I said, working working with Andy was 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 a whole lot of fun because he was he could do some really. He'd say, "Can I say Washington potato?" Yeah, and he'd start doing this little Latka voice and everything, and I'd just get so tickled. Like I can't shoot these if you're gonna make me laugh. And a lot of people don't remember he was really one of the top five TV stars in the country at the time. Yeah, he was. Um, he was. Uh, Taxi was a Taxi was a big a big deal for a long, long time. I mean, and Kaufman, I just, I, I don't know. I, I loved, I loved doing the stuff with him and I really hated that he passed on as early as he did in his life. That was a, that was kind of sad. Shame. And, and it's so hard to watch, you know, even, you know, he knew how sick he was and and man, he just didn't look good. But his final appearance on the Jerry Lawler show doing that interview yeah. and he actually coughs a couple of times but that's how much he loved Memphis wrestling. Uh, well, yeah, and he he just he thought the world of Lawler, and I think he well he he thought the world of Paula, and he, I got a couple of phone calls from him just thanking me for everything that I and I just like I haven't done anything for you, Andy. I mean, all I did was shoot your interviews. He said he said, but he said, yeah, but we have to have those kind of things. And he he was just a super nice guy, and uh, but 
and then then they had the movie. Lawler did the movie yeah. with Jim Carrey. About <laughs> that was I, I, it's like that that gimmick, that whole gimmick, those matches. And that was the gift that just kept on giving for Lawler for, forever. Yeah. It seemed like. Well, I think I think it's the greatest work in the history of the business. Yeah, I mean, when you have, oh yeah, when especially with Letterman not being smartened up and not knowing anything about it. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> was he was kicked <laughs> off after the show. Talk about, yeah, we talk about Dave Brown and all this. Uh, the, it's like Memphis wrestling. The the whole idea of the formula the, of unpredictable unpredictability and not cluing in the host of the program, but it wouldn't have worked otherwise. You know, yeah. the the danger, the sense of danger. Uh, that there was, and it wouldn't have made the front page of the New York Times uh, the following morning if it if it hadn't gone that way. Uh, it just just beautiful stuff. Uh, and just man, I can't. I know I'm I'm keeping you a long time. Uh, something just popped into my head because uh, we talked about Nick Bockwinkel and and in the eyes of Memphis wrestling fans who who are my age, uh, say what you want about the NWA championship and all that. Nick Bockwinkel was the true world champion in the eyes of Memphis fans, uh, begrudgingly. Um, be, but, uh, tell me about, just really quickly, the morning that Ric Flair appeared in the Memphis studio. What were your thoughts on him, and how did he compare to Bockwinkel in your eyes? Um, in, in my eye, well, when, when Rick was coming in that morning, I mean, I was there and we up. I helped sneak him into the building because they didn't want anybody to know that he was around. Of course, within 30 minutes, everyone knew because he was walking around talking to everybody. Um, Flair lived uh, lived his gimmick so much that he was, if you were part of the TV and you're part of the production, you're trying to make this look good, he would be. He was arrogant with everybody. He just had this, and poor Nick was just a consummate professional. Nick would come in and he'd say. Okay, he said, "No, if we do this, if if can I do this? Can I go over here? Can I do? How far can your camera go over here? Where Flair's like, follow me. Well, I can't. No, don't tell me you can't. Just follow me." Mm. He said, "Do you know who I am? Do you understand who?" I, and he's talking, and we're we're like in the back. It's just the two of us. So I, I didn't care for Flair. I never did. I think he was a great worker. Uh, probably one of the best workers out there. Uh, I think his matches got a little bit too predictable, the flop off the top rope yeah. and all this kind of stuff. But he was a hell of a worker, and he represented that that strap very well for a very, very long time. A very long time. Well, and that, I, th- I think that was the key with, with Lawler and Nick, because they had so many different kinds of matches. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick was a lot more versatile, I think. And and much more open, and he would always he would work with Lawler about what we're going to do. He, and Jerry, he'd tell Jerry, he'd say, "Well, what do you want to do tonight?" And Jerry said, "Well, what do you want to do?" He said, Lick says, "I don't care as long as I leave. I'm leaving with the strap." He said, "Let's do whatever you want to do." He said, "I don't care." He said, "Do you want to do sixty minutes? You want to do ninety minutes?" In fact, he sat down and told Lawler once. He said, "He said we ought to do 120 minutes." And Lawler went, "No." <laughs> and, I, and I and I was thinking, please thank you because I'm gonna have to shoot that on my knees at ringside. <laughs> I'd be dead. Oh my word! Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I was like, I was ten years old when they when they went. I guess it was about an hour and fifteen because it was the hour draw and then the overtime period. Where Lola got yeah, the, got the got the, the overtime. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, you you might think that a kid might. Uh, his attention span wouldn't be there for, I was on the edge of my seat during that entire thing. And that's the first time 
that Lawler came to the ring with the lights out and carried to, to carried to the ring on the throne. Yeah, uh, that was the first time he, I remember that he had ever done it. And as a heel, and I think he had you know some jobbers, you know, carried him. And that entrance has been mimicked several times in WWF. Uh, and that was weeks after the Freebirds. I was at the arena that night where the Freebirds came to the ring with the anthem playing. Uh, the Skinner, yeah. you know, the Skinner anthem, and even though they were heels, everyone came to their feet, and Lawler and Dundee were already in the ring, and Lawler was like, you know, arms folded and not not very happy. It was almost like three weeks later when he wrestled Bockwinkle. I'll show you an entrance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh hey well kid i listen um really quickly uh tell everyone what you're doing now in retirement i i, I know that you um ha- have had some health problems we've talked about you having uh an appearance on the show for a long time now and you sound great i'm relieved and man this has been a lot of fun uh can you tell us what you're doing now and and uh the sunshine state well, actually, I'm, uh, my health is, is back to really in good shape right now. My beautiful wife has been like a nurse for me for the last couple of years with all the different things that have been going on. But uh, now I'm, uh, I'm basically trying to court her, and we, we're trying to do a little running around. Uh, I take a lot of photographs. Uh, we actually are members of a community center here for people of retirement age. And uh, I'm on the board of directors there and take photographs for them. So I'm st- trying to stay busy and trying to trying to just enjoy life and enjoy my uh, 23 grandchildren that we have. So wow. we, uh, <laughs> yeah, and and Christmas is coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I'm just I'm just trying to enjoy life here in Florida and and just enjoy my wife and join enjoying the golden years and and. Just living, just living, living the good life, living the good life. Well, and I'm glad that you got to see him, especially after Freebird Michael Hayes stabbed you at ringside with a pair of scissors back in 85, (laughs) which did you get color? Actually, actually what he did was he hit me in the top of the head with the handles Uh and it busted my head open and I had 13 stitches. Ah, the hard way. Hard way. And because I go down and I... You know, everybody always says you don't feel it in the top of your head. I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel a thing. And I'm laying there and I'm, you know, got my hands on top of my head and everything. And I look and I start to raise up a little bit. And Calhoun is laying next to me and he puts his hand on my back. Don't get up. He said, you're bleeding. And I move my hand and there's blood everywhere. And I'm like, oh, shit. So, I mean, I bled like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, had, to go to, had to go to the hospital for stitches. And you believe they would not see me? They would not see me for the longest. I took the bandage. I had a, the guy in the back wound up putting a turban. It looked like a turban on me. I had so much bandage on me. And the girl that I was dating at the time was there, and they wouldn't see me. And I was like 20 minutes sitting there. So I took the bandage off, and I lean over, and there's blood dripping in the floor. They decided they were going to see me then. Wow. But, uh... and, and here's a here's a story. Lawler always gets tickled at this. The police actually showed up and tried to talk to me talked me into filing a complaint against the Freebirds, against Hayes in particular. They were going to go pick him up at the airport and, and arrest him for assault. Gosh. That, that, that's and how, I'm like, I was like, 
Yeah, that's how I'm over like, no, Memphis no, wrestling was. They're probably already gone anyway. That's how over Memphis wrestling was in, in, yeah. in, the, in the city. Even you know when you fool the cops, you know, and, and Lawler with the pile driver deal and Coffin gets a telegram from Paul Bosch, you know, saying yeah. thank you for sticking up for the business. And Bill Watts cut a promo uh, that sounded like he believed it too. <laughs> <laughs> that Lawler had taken this stand and, you know, was not going to uh, let some outsider, some some comedian make a mockery of his business. But, yeah, I remember fearing for your life, man, when, when that uh, when that angle happened. Yeah, the whole thing. And then they stretchered me out. And then that's my kids are like, oh, my God, Dad. I was like, I'm fine. I was back at work the next morning. Wow. You know, so I went home. So you, you may have ridden out on the same stretcher as Mill Mascaris. Back in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably, it probably was, and probably the same guy back there with the patch over the one eye was the one who put the bandage on my head. He may have been taking care of Mill back there too. <laughs> hey, uh, really quickly, because you were you were there in '79. I don't know if you've listened listened to the show or been following the Mill Maskers Monday Night Mystery. Uh, your opinion, reputable international star comes in, does this, you know, not only does the stretcher job, but as Jarrett says, he volunteered. It was his idea to do the honors. Uh-huh. Uh, Jared had a reputation also for bringing in some ringers, a phony Mr. Wrestling, a phony mass superstar, not the legit super destroyer. Um, your opinion, was that the real Mill Mascaris that night? Uh, my opinion? Uh, I, I would be willing to bet that it was Tommy Gilbert or somebody like that. Tommy Gilbert? To that it <laughs> I'd be willing to bet that it wasn't. Okay, Kim, we got to let you go. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do. I believe it was a ringer. I believe it was a ringer. Okay, we can edit that out. Uh, note to Brian last. Edit Ken's response out. Okay. Anyway, uh, other than that, Ken, I've really enjoyed talking with you. <laughs> and, uh... All right, man. Well, I, I have enjoyed it, and uh, um, I look I look forward to hearing it when you get it online and everything. And just let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Hey, man, I uh, I really appreciate it. I am actually working on a couple of uh, side projects that I will uh, reveal very uh, soon. And so, yeah, I actually would love to get a few more details from you. But, man, you sound great, and that is wonderful news for everybody. I know everyone's been kind of uh, following your progress on Facebook. And, uh, and, I, and actually, I want to thank you. Too, Ken, because uh, Memphis wrestling was a big part of my childhood, and especially the year 1981, I still think is one of the best years. And that was your, that was your, uh, I guess, rookie season there. Uh, yep, that's, that's a, that was the start of it. Around that time was the start of it for me. So kudos to you and the entire crew who made it all happen. Um, well, I appreciate that, Scott. I, uh, I don't know how much I did to help, but uh, I appreciate the, I appreciate the kind words. Well, well, good luck to you, and good luck to your dolphins. I, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't know. It's not going to be a good year, I don't think. But you know, but hey, one year at a time, one year at a time. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Okay, Ken. We'll take care, and uh, we'll be back with more Kentucky Fried Wrestling right after this.
athlete. Boy, this is totally out of hand. Idle up there battling with the Freebirds. Lawler. With that cane, they knock Gordy straight over the back. Give it to Hayes. You ought to give him more. Huh? It's a no disqualification, Jerry. And that was Ken Parnell, a uh, longtime engineer for WMC TV, as well as cameraman for Jarrett Promotions. And I really want to thank Ken. We've been trying to organize this for a while and set a date. He's had obviously some health issues and heart complications, but I'm I'm so happy for him. He sounds great. Uh, he sounds happy, and I just I just love it for a guy who really worked hard in this business, was a fan of the business, and now really gets to reap the rewards and enjoy retirement there in Florida. If only the Miami Dolphins would start winning for him. Come on, Dolphins. Anyway, uh, thank you, Ken, for providing a very, very unique perspective on the behind the scenes of Memphis Wrestling on Saturday mornings and on Monday nights at the Mid-South Coliseum. I am your host, Scott Bowden, and you can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden, where I continue to hunt for clues to the identity of just who was under the mask on January 29th, 1979. We're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Emil Mascaris Monday Night Mystery, and I can't help but think one of you out there can help me solve a mystery. And if you're looking for great Christmas gifts for the wrestling fan on your naughty list, well, that's no mystery. You just head over to MemphisWrestlingTees.com for a wide and woolly array of t-shirts, mostly that are not in violation of various copyrights. Get them while you can, folks, before we hear from their attorneys. Only at MemphisWrestlingTees.com. You can follow my co-host on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden reminding you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.